Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Chris Gary, the Chillmeister, one half of the We Are Rising podcast and one of the administrators of the Focus Fights YouTube channel and currently an active Twitter account. Before this special Bellator MMA edition of the We Are Rising podcast begins, which I'll let y'all know, it was recorded April 17th of this year. We in the combat sports community would like to pay our respects and condolences to four people who have lost their lives over the last couple of months in addition to the current pandemic affecting our world at large. Exactly 10 days prior to the podcast being recorded, rising MMA star Isaiah the Beast Chapman was murdered senselessly on his way home to see his wife and children in Akron, Ohio. A representative of Apex Fight Systems, which is home to current UFC heavyweight champion Stipe Miocic. Chapman wasn't well known around the fight world, but he was getting noticed by the masses in North America as the 9-4 former North American Allied Fighting Systems title challenger and former one-fight WSOF veteran rode a three-fight winning streak into honor fighting championships on the way to becoming their bantamweight champion before losing his one and only Bellator opportunity to Patrick No Love Mix on his way to getting into Ryzen at Bellator 232 last October. Outside the cage, he was a devoted family man and a pillar of his community that many around him had love, respect, and gratitude for. He was tragically taken away from this world at 30 years and 6 months old. The crazed madman that killed him, whose name will not be mentioned for obvious reasons, is currently awaiting trial at this very moment by Ohio State authorities and may end up getting the death penalty. Then, 9 days later, on April 18th, WWE Hall of Famer Howard Finkel, a.k.a. The Fink, died due to previous complications from a stroke he suffered in February of 2019. As one of Vincent K. McMahon's first employees after the younger McMahon took over from his late father Vincent Chess McMahon, Finkel's voice was one of the reasons why the World Wrestling Federation, now World Wrestling Entertainment Incorporated, or just WWE, ended up becoming the recognized symbol of excellence in sports entertainment and professional wrestling for most of the time he was active there. Although his inbreeding capabilities were limited to a long-time feud with Harvey Whippleman, an infamous scout-shaven incident at SummerSlam 1998, and an infamous tuxedo match with current Pro Fighters League cage announcer Lillian Garcia in 2002, The Fink was the soundtrack to many milestone moments in professional wrestling history from 1979 to 2016 and was the main voice bellowing out and knew whenever a champion was crowned from the Big Fed in Stanford, Connecticut. In the years before the stroke, the Fink would be used sporadically for occasional WWE TV episodes and pay-per-views, and not to mention the Hall of Fame segment in all but one WrestleMania from 2004 to 2016, excluding WrestleMania 25 in 2009, and was also a member of the first WWE Network program, WWE Legends House, and was a backstage agent making sure things sell smoothly at the shows that he attended. He was 69 years old. Then more recently, on May 17th, WWE veteran Shad Nabeast Gaspard drowned off the coast of Venice Beach, California as he was enjoying a day with his young son. 
The former amateur prize fighter, celebrity bodyguard, and all-around athlete well-versed in a multitude of martial arts, broke out in promotions like Ohio Valley Wrestling and NWA Wildside, now known under the name Why We Wrestle, as well as having a one-off appearance for Booker T's Reality of Wrestling when it was the Pro Wrestling Alliance, but most notably as a physical goliath of a tag team partner and competitor alongside his tag team partner Jason Paul, a.k.a. JTG, that's J-A-Y-S-O-N, before the two of them were called up to the main roster for the WWE in 2006. For much of the time that the duo spent in that promotion, from 2006 to 2010 with JTG spending time there until 2014, the duo known as Crime Time with Y's instead of I's in their name were one of the most popular groups of competitors in the WWE vying for tag team opportunities and big time success. That was until a bit of a falling out and the two went their separate ways after having a one-off match at Extreme Rules 2010. Chad mostly left professional wrestling in 2011 save for independent dates in the US and UK and stops in Guyana, the Inoki Genome Federation teaming alongside Bobby Lashley in Japan, and his maternal homeland of Haiti and becoming a stage and screen actor and stunt performer in the off-Broadway stage play Pugilist. In movies like Kevin Hart and Steve Harvey Stink Like a Man 2, Kevin Hart and Will Ferrell's Get Hard, and the upcoming movie Birds of Prey, and television programs like the critically acclaimed Key and Peele, The Game, The Exorcist, and The Last Sharknado, It's About Time. He also provided motion capture for Kratos in the God of War video game and stopped an armed robbery from happening at a South Florida gas station in 2016. However, on that May Sunday in SoCal, he played the role that no person wants to ever grace. A strong rip current tied it over Venice Beach and shattered his son wearing the crosshairs. Lifeguards came over to attempt to save the two, but Shad insisted that they save his son first. After the lifeguard saved his son, they went back out looking for Shad, but he went underwater as he was sucked under the current. Chad's body was underwater for three days before washing up on the shore at Venice Beach, May 20th. He was only 39 years old and had a lot of projects, including his artwork, yet to be finished. In addition to that, he and JTG were co-holders of the VIP Wrestling Tag Team Championships in the DFW Texas Metroplex, having just wrestled their last match as a team. Three defenses into their title reign on January 31st. And finally, and sadly, the most tragic of them all, second generation wrestler Hana Kimura took her own life this past weekend as of the time of this recording, May 23rd. The daughter of Joshi wrestling legend and JMMA veteran Kyoko Kimura and stepdaughter of former two division King of Pancrase world champion Isao Kobayashi practically grew up in the wrestling business, starting at the tender young age of 8 years old when she became the youngest person to win the DDT Ironman Heavy Metalweight Championship before losing said belt to her mother shortly thereafter. Hana began her wrestling career in full when she debuted under the tutelage of Atsushi Sakai, or just Kai, 
for the now defunct Wrestle 1 promotion in 2016 while also being a ring girl for Pancras. Not too long after facing off against her own mother in her mom's retirement match on August 7, 2016, Kimura won her second title and first as a pro on September 18th when she defeated Yako Fujikasaki in the finals of a tournament to crown the new Joshi Wrestling Project Junior Champion. Later that year, she and her mother, who was returning from retirement for a small time, teamed with Kagetsu to become the artist of Stardom's six woman tag team champions in World Wonder Ring Stardom. After the trio dropped the belts, Hana would join Oedo Tai to become the Goddess of Stardom tag team champions, alongside Kagetsu defeating Jungle Kiona and Hiroyo Masuboto in June of 2017, holding those belts until losing them in April 2019 to Saki Kashima and former Ring of Honor, Women of Honor World Champion Mayu Iwatani. From then on, she joined World Wonder Ring Stardom and formed her own faction alongside Jungle Kiona, Konami, and Leila Hirsch, just to name a few, firstly known as the International Army, then later becoming the Tokyo Cyber Squad. It was under the latter name when she, Kiyoma, and Konami won the Artist of Stardom six-woman tag team titles over Mayu Iwatani, Saki Kahima, and Tom Nakano, T-A-M Nakano, May 16, 2019. By the end of last year, she would become the five-star Grand Prix tournament winner and win Stardom's Fighting Spirit Award in the process. Starting off 2020 on an international high, Hana got noticed on a worldwide scale back on January 4th as she wrestled alongside her rival, the British-born Italian-sounding Julia Chiaiulia, against Arisa Hoshiki and her sworn rival Mayu Iwatani in a tag team match on the pre-show of Wrestle Kingdom 14 at the Tokyo Dome, which marked the first time that a woman's professional wrestling match took place at the Big Egg since 2002. It wasn't her first time being noticed internationally as she previously visited promotions such as Pro Wrestling Eve in England and Ring of Honor Wrestling in Baltimore, Maryland, USA, first as a competitor in the Women of Honor tournament to crown their first champion, and competing in a six-woman tag team dark match on the history-making G1 Supercard show, which also featured competitors for Rail Pro, New Japan Pro Wrestling, and the CMLL on WrestleMania weekend 2019 at the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden in New York City. However, things would soon take a dark turn. Appearing on the Netflix and Fuji TV reality series Terrence House, Hana got into a fit with a fellow cast member whose name is withheld for the purposes of this story when that person took Hana's Wrestle Kingdom 14 outfit out of the washer prematurely and shrunk it in the dryer, thus inciting Hana to smack the cap off that person's head. The fans of that show made Hana out to be a bully and a villain, and some of the fans took it upon themselves to bash and demean Hana on Twitter just to ruin her reputation. But it was because of that backlash of the incident and the hatred sent her way partially geared towards Hana and Kyoko's mixed race background, half Japanese, half Indonesian, that sent Hana into depression, which eventually led to her posting self-harming images on Twitter and Instagram and committing suicide by way of hydrogen sulfide injection. She, sadly, 
was only 22 years old with so much life ahead of her. In addition to that, over the last four months dating back to late January, there have been nearly 350,000 people who have perished from the COVID-19 pandemic, with more than 5 million cases confirmed worldwide, including 100,000 deaths and 1.6 million confirmed cases in the United States of America alone. So in closing, to honor the memories of Chapman, Finkel, Gaspard, and Hannah, and to all the lives lost over the last few months due to this pandemic, we honor them now with a memorial 10-bell salute as a way to say that while they may be gone forever, their memories, lives, and legacies will forever fight on. May they rest in eternal peace, and may they never be forgotten in our minds and in our hearts. said we welcome you to a very special bellator mma edition of the we are rising podcast the only podcast devoted and dedicated more often than not to the rising fighting federation the heir apparent of pride fighting championships you can check us out on twitter at we are rising pod w-e-a-r-e-r-i-z-i-n-p-o-d all in one word as well as on spotify soundcloud stitcher YouTube, and whatever other podcast providers of choice you may have in your possession, at least, hopefully soon, aside from those other four. Other than that, welcome, I'm Chris Gary, at ChrisGary92 on Twitter. My podcast partners are at Teep to the Junk, who just goes by the name of Teep to the Junk, and Andrew Benjamin, at abenja one And as we get into the nitty-gritty, y'all... We are going to talk about the Bellator MMA event cancellations, but I want to get y'all thoughts about Iron Michael Chandler, the two-time Bellator lightweight champion of the world, and one of the stars of Bellator who basically put the promotion on the map. There's plans that he might go to Japan later this year to fight Tofik Musayeb to crown the first ever rising lightweight champion of the world. I just want to ask, what are your thoughts about that, and... Do y'all think that he probably might get more publicity over in Japan than in these United States? Or would he be better off fighting for another promotion, considering if he's even deemed rising worthy? 
Latif, I just have a question. What is Chad Edwards' contract status with Bellator currently? So he has the one fight left on his deal, and he has a fight book for June. He did have a fight book for June versus Benson Henderson, the rematch. And uh, uh, after that, he's a free agent. They were in negotiations, but they couldn't come to an agreement. And he said, well, I'm in a fight camp now, so I'm not going to negotiate while I'm training. Leading, you know, train himself up the peak for the fight. But with the cancellation, maybe they'll have some talks and they'll lock him down. So they'll come to an agreement. He's one of the faces of the company. He's had some of the best fights they've ever put on. So I imagine they'll put up the money to keep him. But I love the idea of him fighting Topeak in Japan. But they would assume they'd both have to win their fights until then. New Year's Eve's a long way off. Well, here's the other question also I have as well is, given the current landscape, well, here's the thing. Japan currently has a moratorium, a, a ban on all foreign travelers that do not have a Japanese passport. So, do you think the likelihood of that fight even happening, maybe even this year, based on travel restrictions, which it just might not even, it, it may not even be realistic to even talk about such a fight given the travel restrictions that Japan has enacted for foreigners? Well, I mean, as far as it happening in the immediate future, I don't think, you know, every fight is speculative every discussion at the moment so i mean it's as fun as any other stylistically that is an intriguing fight uh, i didn't think tofik was going to be able to get past pitbull and i thought he might struggle with case but he just showed it, it showed his his real grit and technique and angles and everything so i think it's a good fight to talk about as far as it happening in saki proposed sort of like summertime or whenever it was late summer super bowl type co-promotion i mean they could do it then and just have bendo fight someone else now, also regarding Chandler, do you think it's likely that he would sign with uh, the Zufa organization, UFC? Sorry, I have a Zufa now. I want to say Endeavor. Endeavor owned UFC, uh, possibly. I think there's a good chance that if he actually makes it to outside of his exclusive period, that the UFC will make a good pitch for him because he's a fantastic fighter. He's in his, I think, early 30s still. He's, a, he's in his absolute prime. And, uh, you know, he's coming off badass knockout of, of uh, Sydney Outlaw. It's not like he's coming off that Patricio thing. So if he fights his fight or if the time runs out and his contract expires, I don't know what the language is. Yeah, man, they should try and put some money up in because that's like their premier division, lightweight. So getting another guy, another recognized top guy would be sweet. But I think the fight with Bendo, if it doesn't happen June, that's going to make a big difference. Because if he wins it and hits free agency, he's the number one contender in the division. Hitting free agency. If he loses, he's not. Because like when the tricky people lost in Ryzen, he was the number one contender, but he lost the fight. So now Bendo's the guy. Chandler's trying to become the guy and be a free agent. In that position, that would be a sweet place to be. But he'll get some money offers anyway from one UFC, probably from PFL. Hmm. You, think, you think PFL would? I, 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 I don't know. Hmm. Because I feel like PFL, they don't go for, I don't want to say, it I seems like they go for, like, I would say maybe under top five fighters, not people that are, like, above five. And I'll definitely say Michael Chandler is definitely, like, top five, four, three, two, uh, you know, one, uh, and lightweights in the world. But they seem to go for just the people that are just below that top five level. And, and their um, divisions. What I guess. I think some of that is because fighters come and go from the, from their org, but they did get a lot of investment money, millions of it, and they're they're spreading it out. They got Rory. You know, now obviously Bellator didn't bid to retain Rory from what Coker said, but they still put up enough money that he didn't go somewhere else. 
I think the same with Chandler. They'll offer what they feel they can offer. They're, they're really making a play, which is great for the market. You just want more and more bidders. That's what the fighters need. There's no early act, so what they're relying on right now is just competition within sort of like the crappy contract structure that they're stuck in. So I think it's good, and I think Chandler stands to get a lot more money if he hits free agency rather than if he resigns. Unless Bellator is like, okay, dude, we're really going to get out those zone dollars and make it worth your while. Because they've retained most of their talent. Most of Bellator's Coker-era talent stayed with the company. You know, after he he let Alvarez go because that was like kind of poisoned and there was the legal stuff. Since then, they've managed to, you know, even with Rampage when Rampage left for a fight, he was like, "Fuck this!" And then he still came back. You know, they work it out. They're pretty smooth that way. Don't burn the bridges. Hmm. Indeed. But let me you, let me ask you guys a uh, hey let me ask you a question, Garrett. Okay. Let me ask. So, what do you see stylistically between like a Chandler and? Musaya fight. How do you see that playing out as far as on the feet of the wrestling changes? Well, I mean, to be honest, when it comes to that particular fight, I don't think that it would be an easy fight for Chandler because Musayev has been proven to be dominant, more so in the striking and grappling departments since we knew who the hell he was, really. It was crazy you know, given the fact that he started off as an unknown. It was crazy given the fact that he starched Nobumitsu Tyson Osawa <laughs> without even so much as lifting a finger, really. He intimidated him from the fucking way in on. But as we've seen time and time in his rise and run, we know damn well that he's been as dominant as can be, and now that he's the Grand Prix champion, soon to be the full-time world champion, we can only assume that Musayev needs one more big-name win in order to propel himself to be the foreign star for Ryzen, or in the case of many fighters before him, going over to the UFC. And hopefully that shit doesn't happen, but still. I can imagine Musayev having a dangerous fight against Chandler it's just that he's gonna have to mind his P's and Q's because Chandler himself possesses that wrestling background you know yeah I think uh, if I'm judging from the Patricky fight which I think probably was the one where you can definitely see where uh, Tofik's weaknesses are and that uh, he's a guy you know he when Tofik has the opportunity to pressure somebody that's where you don't want Tofik but it seems like he tends to panic or walk up, up with two left feet when he's the one who's getting pressured. And we and I saw that in a few, sometimes when Petriki was getting in some nice shots and was able to close in on Topi, Topi kind of just goes for these like Hail Mary takedowns that, that you know, either, some, you know, he just used them as just a way to just create some sort of momentary space to get to, to uh, recuperate. Uh, maybe just get his thoughts back in, you know, you know, obviously stop his opponent from uh, wailing on him. I, can you do that against somebody like a Chandler? I don't know. Because Chandler's the type of guy who just always on top of you. you if you try to run away from Chandler, Chandler will chase you. Uh, if you come near Chandler, that's when he's most dangerous. So I don't know if Tofik... I, I feel like I could say it's going as far as maybe the second or third round before Chandler would knock him out. 
I think Chandler would knock out Tofik. I'll say in a rise in a ring if the fight happens, which it hopefully does. It's a very interesting fight because uh, it's obviously I would definitely say Bellator is number two lightweight um, versus Tofik. Uh, rise is number one lightweight. Uh, even though you know, I know that you know Chandler and Tofik kind of like is a fight to make, but. I'm more interested in seeing uh, Patricio fight Topic because you have that you have the whole thing that he defeated his brother, and I think it's I, I, I consider that he is the Bellator lightweight champion. Yeah, I think he that's is the, the Bellator lightweight and featherweight world champion. Exactly, <laughs> and if you wanted to do something where he and Topic fight for the inaugural Ryzen lightweight belt, Patricio then gets has the opportunity to become a, a three belt holder. In two organizations, mm-hmm. and in one organization, two different lightweight classes. So I think that's why I'd love to put the Patricio match versus Topic. In my personal opinion, yeah, brother, I'm a hundred percent down to see that Patricio is the monster and his power. We've seen other fighters move up, and that power didn't necessarily translate. Like Connor has kept a good bit of his power. Max didn't keep his power moving up. Oh, he wasn't particularly known for that anyway, but. But Patricia, when he moved up and he clipped Chandler, like he had more speed and he still had the power. So I, I think he's a harder fight for Topeak than Chandler. Although Chandler, as far as all the lightweights in the world, Chandler might match up favorably against maybe more lightweights in the world than Patricia. I'm not sure. Stylistically. But specifically, I think Topeak would have a lot of trouble with Patricia. Man, that little guy's fast. And he knows how to use that speed. He, he can get inside on somebody and put the hurt to them or catch them coming in. Very tricky. Great reflexes, killer instinct. He's got a great set of submissions that he, we don't always see. He's, he's always very quick to slap one on there if the opportunity presents itself. Yeah, and like I said, you know, I just I like the idea, you know, of putting up a, a, a inaugural lightweight belt for Ryzen to do that because then I think that's an interesting. That's an inter- I think it's a great solo fight. A guy with the opportunity to become a three belt champion versus you know the guy who won the uh, the uh, tournament. To basically earn the right to become uh, to face the, for, that, for that belt, I think it's a, I think I think it's personally just a much more interesting match. I would not be like upset if Chandler and Tofik happened, but I just I personally I would rather see Patricio. My personal opinion. Well, how about this? How about Chandler fights Bendo, Tofik fights somebody, but then the winner of Chandler Bendo fights Tofik, the winner of that fights Patricio. You know what? That would be fun. That would uh, be the fun. One, Please the continue. Thing is that if if, if uh, Bendo wins, I'll be honest. I don't think I think a Bendo versus Tofik goes uh, goes two ways. I think Tofik knocks out Bendo, or Bendo wins by split decision. <laughs> I think Bendo wins the decision in that fight. Yeah, that would. And his endurance and, and the fact that he speeds up as the fight goes on. You know, few few fighters have that sort of cardio, like that sort of, like he, he's criticized for being a slow starter, but he's not a slow finisher, you know what I mean? He can keep going and going and going. Even like the Kreshkov fight where he got the shit beat out of him, Bendo was still there. And it's like, how are you still there? But he was. That's just how he does, man. He's indestructible. You know what? I think a fight between Benson Henderson and Tofik Musayev would be fun. But to be honest, if he does win via split decision, 
who the hell would even want to see him as the rising lightweight champion, considering the fact that many people think that his fights are boring? I don't think we have to worry about that so much. I mean, he'd be coming in off a win over Chandler if they keep doing that fight. So he'd have a lot of momentum in the sporting sense and more, you know, recent recognition. But also, it's rising rules, man. Soccer kicks. Bendo <laughs> might be a fourth. It makes it worth it to try and push someone down. Oh, shove someone down. right, right, Ability. right. Because it would, I mean, because normally his fighting style would basically be hindered because, you know, it's not exciting. But put his ass in a rising ring, give him all the pomp and circumstance he needs because of the fact that he's of Korean-American descent, having him fight in Japan for the second time. And, you know, give him all the pleasure of him coming into that ring as possibly can. You know, it would be fun to see him unleash some soccer kicks on somebody just as long as he's not boring. Well, it's harder to be boring under rising rules because you're not supposed to stall and you have to posture up to strike. So, like, think about when King Mo fought Krokop. Mm-hmm. They stood him up. He, he was on top. He was doing a little ground and pound, but he was... They don't like that pitter-patter stuff. You know, relative pitter-patter. It's not to talk down about anything. Mm-hmm. But you can't, you know, despite what Joe Warren was saying on the mic, you can't win rounds. And they'll stand you up. So that's what happened. They stood it up. And now, you know, Kokop was still strong with the underhooks. And King Mo had trouble after that because he used a lot of energy. And, uh, you know, so I think, but I think Bendo's cardio would serve him really well on the rising room. He can go at that pace that mm-hmm. they demand. Yeah. And he speeds up as the fight goes on. I think it would actually... Be good for, I think he'd be exciting under that rule set. And uh, couldn't win rounds, so he'd have to fight. If, you can't be like, I won round one, I won round two. You know, it doesn't work that way with the judging. It's damage near finishes. So I think we'd see him change submissions and be quite dynamic. Maybe that's what he needs. Bendo needs to go fight under rising rules. You know, I don't know. I think I disagree with that. I think, that'll, I think a lot of fighters, I think the referees, in Japanese MMA, we see different referees have different... Approaches to fights like okay, like Ryugoku Wada, Ryugaku Wada, excuse me. Um, he wants action nonstop. He's the one who goes action, action, and he will, he will stand up if like if there's if there was like ten seconds of of dead of deadness or no approved position. Yo, he Andrew. Wants, yo, Andrew. Who refereed the the Haraguchi Cowboy fight? That was a disaster of rising rules. That was an abandonment. Wasn't it Herzog? I think I was about to say, I think it was Jason Herzog. Let me double check on that. Uh, Because I was going to say, Herzog, you know, don't forget, he comes from a different school of referee. He's mostly doing, you know, unified rules where you don't really stand up anybody unless nothing is happening. And so I I think he's more used to that type of refereeing. Then, you know, when he, when they bring him over uh, from California to the uh, Japan to do the Ryzen uh, shows or uh, or the other Japanese shows that he does, I think that, you know, he just, you know, he's just, that's just, you know, that's what he mostly does. So it's kind of like that's what he, it's, that's, that's more like in his head. No, I'm not saying it's like nefarious or that he has like any bias, but just, that's just how, um, that's how, that, you know, that's how he's been taught. So it kind of is... Yeah, he just he just used that. It's in his DNA. Yeah, well, I, I understand that. I, you know, I'm not going to disrespect him. He's respected, but uh, I didn't like that shit. I like the action guy. Action, action. That's my kind of shit. Like, that's what I love about the rules. You know, that's what separates it from a lot of the other rule sets in, in 
got to go. You're supposed to, and not just I'm on top, I'm touching the guy. You're supposed to advance position or posture to strike. And that by itself, like Nick Diaz said, he said the space, you have to create the posture up. It's the same space I'm trying to create to get up. He summed up the whole thing, the beauty of that rule set to me. Keep it moving. But that, but there are certain fighters like Bendo who can be in fights that aren't considered exciting. But if you put them under a rule set where they have to go, they have to go and the, the, the parameters for winning change to like damage and near finishes. You see a guy like him with his skill set, his ability really push himself and come out fast. That could be a scary thing, man. He might be better under rising rules. Mm-hmm. Never know. Certain guys, you know, like you can see like with Fedor and Krokop, you put them in a ring. It's different than if they're in a cage. Yes, it was Herzog, by the way. It was Herzog. So, yeah, that's why nobody was going to stand up there in that fight. And the second in the rematch in uh, New York City was uh, Todd Anderson. And he stood them up, didn't he? More than the other guy. How crazy is that? I'm pretty sure. I was pretty drunk for that. Indeed. I mean, to be honest, wouldn't it have been better if, you know, both of the fights were done under rising rules? Uh, belts were wanted to be in their setting for their belt. Yeah, I think you know, and it showed you know, it showed what Howard Gucci could still you know. I think it's kind of like you know, you uh, uh, you come to my territory, I'll beat you. I'll give you the opportunity to beat me in your territory, type thing. You know, it's what they used to do in pro wrestling. You know, they, you know, you know, Rick Flair, you know, would do you know, would go over in North Carolina, and then you know, when you go to basically know, what um, you're saying, Andrew is. And I hate to interrupt, even though it's kind of my thing, but what you're saying is you came into my territory to take what's mine. I'm going to come into your territory and take what's yours. Yeah, but uh, you know, unlike in pro wrestling, you know, where the outcomes are obviously decided, you know, it's, it's it, you know, you put, usually the guy, when you come into the home team's territory, usually you are there to lose, not to win. Question for Teep uh, uh, I have for you. Um, what is the status of this featherweight tournament? Has it been entirely scrapped, or are they going to continue it as soon as they uh, go back to having regular shows, Bellator? Well, from what Coca said, they're going to make up all the shows. And as it happened, they didn't have that many shows booked compared to, say, like the UFC that have, has a much busier schedule. But Bellator always sort of loads up the back end of the year as it is. But this year was even more pronounced. So there was, you know, 241 was supposed to happen in March, but then 242 wasn't scheduled until May. And then Bellator London in May, and then uh, 243, which only had the one fight, Hamush uh, versus, uh, I can't even read it in the dark, but Bellator 243 was, I think, at the end of May, and then one in June. So they really, there's only really like two shows, that, I mean, three shows that were severely disrupted. Unfortunately, two of them were huge shows. I think they're going to just reschedule all the shows. I assume they're looking at venues and trying to figure out when they can reintroduce. They might just do studio lots. It might just be on a CBS or a Viacom lot at first. Well, also, here's a question I have as well. Florida announced that that sports, uh, pro wrestling, and I'm guessing other sports, anything with a national reach, is considered essential. So, being that Bellator obviously is on the zone and Paramount, uh, do you think that they might, maybe, or look, could, could do shows in Florida? Perhaps, uh, I don't know if Paramount has, you know, some sort of 
studio or I don't know, uh, maybe even rent out, you know, the WWE Performance Center uh, since they, uh, I'm not so sure if they have a cage, but I know they have a ring. Um, plus, I'm pretty sure that it's not too hard to build a, uh, a cage. Do you think that they might, that it might, uh, they might start doing uh, no-person no, no shows in Florida? Well, it's hard to say, but I don't get the sense, personally, that they're rushing to get back in. Like, they got a lot of good PR from paying everyone to cancel the show and sort of showing that restraint. And I think they're going to be pretty patient about how they do it and have very careful re-entry into the market. So I would imagine that they'll wait till they get clearance in one of their places that they normally do shows. But it's hard to say, you know, whatever we'll end up doing. But from what Coker suggested, it might be on lots, on studio production lots, like closed, closed event, which will be weird. I don't know how that'll be. I didn't see the UFC. Did you guys watch the UFC show that they did with the closed arena? How was that? Um, it was kind of like watching one of those uh, Ultimate Fighter shows when they're doing the uh, doing the fights. You just hear people yelling. <laughs> also, got to add. Um, so you know, it was funny that people, you know, a lot of brain dead MMA fans were like, "Oh, this this could be like the highest rated MMA show of all time because there's nothing else on that day. They're 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 going up against nobody. You know, people are gonna be hungry for shit. It turned out to be like the lowest rated fight nights." I think in their history, or at least one of their lowest uh, fight nights of all time. So damn that. I mean, to be honest, they were probably thinking of high expectations, seeing that nothing else was going on as far as live sports. But then they ended up getting shit canned. Well, they get, you get they get a lot. Of, MMA gets a lot of shine from what else is on playing around it, what leads into it. Like, and sometimes it's planned. Like, so like when they had Connor fight uh, the ghost of Dennis Diver in, in Boston. That was right after a Patriots playoff game, which they won, I believe. Mm -hmm. and, and it led into it, and it was a huge rating for them. They did that, that was brilliant star building, you know? Getting the almost guaranteed win. Again, you know, like in this prime time slot, this, this super slot right after a huge televised event. But like when nothing's on, I mean, MMA is kind of a smaller sport. We have a certain amount of people who tune in casually. You know, just from being around because other things have been on. And uh, that's just how it is. We underestimate how small it can be. That's all good. There's only one MMA star that anybody knows, and that's Conor McGregor. You might have some people who recognize the name of uh, of Khabib, and then there's people who still think Ronda Rousey is, a, is, a, is an MMA. Uh, so, you know. Yeah, listen, there's, 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 you know, there's the, uh, early, there's the, uh, the Forrest Griffin, Stephen Bonner, Randy Couture, Chuckle Dell years. Those those years are long gone. Well, now there's just a lot more athletes in the market, and things are more competitive because there are a lot more athletes. There's a, a larger portion of high-level athletes. So, uh, you know, a lot of times in people, you know, with the social media, it's easier for people to study each other. So fights are a lot more competitive, perhaps. There's less surprise and shock. And uh, so it's just, it's a different era, but... Uh, the solution is to just watch the classics along with watching today's stuff to remind ourselves of what is great about the sport mm -hmm. and not just always take what's given to us and that's all we see. Because that, a lot of that, you know, fights are inherently entertaining, but most of the fights you see in a year don't back up to the sum of all the classics all time in the sport. So the healthy thing is to watch the classics and remember that and then see today's stuff and enjoy it for what it is. And then you get those gems, 
those moments where sometimes even not in a high level fight, like when uh, Raymond Daniels put the 720 punch on home slice in Birmingham, that was absolutely mm. incredible. And then did the bow, did the cartoonish bow, sort of, you know, the slow bow. You, you can't, you know, but like moments like that that are just so electric, that was fire for me. I was absolutely on fire watching that whole card. But, uh, you know, and then you watch it, you enjoy the other stuff, but there are certain things. I'm sure it's like that in pro wrestling, guys. There are these epic moments that are just exhilarating. And then the rest of the time, you kind of enjoy it. It's not like you're euphoric for every moment of the event. That would just be weird. That would be draining, I'd, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I, with that being said, I do want to get to one of the questions uh, from uh, one of the listeners. And this is a... Uh, uh, one of the gentlemen, actually, it is Gentleman's Combat. And he asks, why are the Bellator prelims essentially a human sacrifice hour? And he's got a very nice picture there of the Bellator MMA logo uh, that looks like a sun. And uh, uh, a fighter presumably being sacrificed uh, by five other people with his heart being ripped out. So, Team, I will, yes, I'll, I'll defer that question to you. Um, <laughs> Great question. I love that picture. Yeah, gentlemen's combat. Thanks for the, the big dick energy question. <laughs> we, what you'll see is a lot of times on the prelims, and it's not a rule because they have experienced fighters on the prelims, but they are constantly scouting for talent. When they do a show in a region, they draw from gyms in that region, promising fighters, perspective, sort of like, you know, people they might consider putting on a exclusive contract, but first they offer non-exclusive contracts. They bring them in. They might have no fights. They might have sometimes up to eight or nine amateur fights but no professional fights. And they have them fight other athletes. And they sit there cage side, Coker and Rich Chow, and they just watch and they look for tomorrow's talent. And that's how they found a lot of fighters, uh, not just in Bellator, but also in Strike Force years. They found a lot of guys by being there, seeing them really early in their career and, and finding them before anyone else knew they were there. And so that's why you'll often see guys with what look like hardly existing records fighting on the prelims. They're basically trying out for exclusive slots. And then also some of the hottest prospects from the amateurs or from collegiate wrestling or other places, they'll find them to an exclusive long-term contract with no fight sometimes and bring them up in the org, kind of like you see in boxing where they just slowly give them steps up bit by bit until they mature and then they all collide. Hmm. Kind of like what they've been doing with A.J. McKee and Aaron Chalmers, right? Exactly. So Chalmers, he lost some of those fights. He got stepped up. He hit he hit ceiling. But with McKee, he had, I think, I think he was 6-1 and one as an amateur. And they signed him at the end of his amateur career. And he's had 16 fights now. So for probably 12 of those fights, people are like, oh, when's he going to fight somebody? But then... He's gradually getting there, but they're not trying to find a way to have AJ McKee lose. They're trying to build him into a star and also a world-class athlete or enable him to build himself into one. And so he gets these steps up. But now he's 16-0 and and he's in a tournament and he's still not lost and he looks superb and he's got the skill set and the maturity as a fighter that he wouldn't have if he was like 5-1 and and they throw him in there with a monster just to get smashed. You know, he has momentum and confidence that, you know, it's like they do in boxing. It's, very, it's a clever way to bring up the fighter. It's frustrating for fans sometimes when they want to see a faster step up. But that's what Aaron Pico did. Aaron Pico did the fast step up. Mark Hunt did it 
Viviano Fernandez did it. A lot of guys have done it, and they they get they get lost that way. It doesn't ruin them as a fighter, but it ruins their momentum. So AJ McKee is an example of perfect prospect building into a name. Because now he's a guy where a lot of the UFC fans are like, I would love to see that guy in the UFC. Well, that's, I want to talk about some of the prospects. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I do want to talk about Bellator's prospects because, yeah, like you said, you know, we always hear, all, you know, if they're not, you know, I, I want to dispel the myth that, that if you are in UFC, that means you are automatically at some higher level than other fighters that are in Bellator or Ryzen or just anywhere else. So let's talk about some of them, uh, some of the prospects. Obviously, you, know, you mentioned AJ McKee. Do I think he, I think he is beyond now a prospect? I, I think he's proven himself. AJ uh, McKee obviously is a title contender. Yeah, he's undefeated as well. So and he, you know, has maybe the one of the most impressive submission finishers against a fighter who. I'm not going to say that he should have been finished against, but who should have been much harder uh, to beat in Derek Campos. Was it Derek Campos, I think? In there? Yeah, he pulled, he pulled off that armbar. It was beautiful. I think it was an armbar, technically, combo, some sort of combination thing. But yeah, that was gorgeous. So, I, I, you know, at one point he was a prospect. I think he's no longer a prospect. Um, Patricky Mix, Apache Mix, um, I do think maybe, you know, with one more fight... It's no longer a Bellator prospect. I mean, it's very hard to like say that, like he, you know, that he still needs to prove himself. But I just like to see one more fight. I think, you know, I think the fight that you know that you suggested before um, again is against Juan Archuleta. That's a fight to make. Um, I would, I would say, I would say we'd have to sort of qualify prospect talk with what do we mean by a prospect? Is a prospect someone who's never fought anybody, or is a prospect someone who's never hit that ceiling? Like, can you? Because you could have four or five great wins and be ranked, but no one knows where you're feeling it if you're not yet the champ. So in that sense, McKee is still a prospect because we don't know. He might starch Cowell and then the and then Pitbull or the winner of Sanchez Weichel. You know, we don't know. So in that sense, he's a prospect, but he's already proven himself among the elite. I would say at one point. Okay. Well, I'll tell you an example of somebody who likes her a prospect based on her record. Uh, flyweight Valerie Loeda. She's 2-0 and in, in, in pro. Uh, I know she has a different amateur record, but she is 2-0 and in pro in Bellator. And those are, she's only fought in Bellator, by the way. So I think I would definitely consider her a prospect based on her record as of now. Um, what can you tell us about Valerie Loeda? Yeah, so she's a Taekwondo master, and I saw her pro debut live in Mohegan Sun. That was the night Krokop fought Ray Nelson, and Minikov fought Congo, and MVP and Sentex had their wrestle fest. But Lareda opened the main card with just an incredible flurry for the knockdown and finish. She was crying, everyone was all happy, and didn't get impatient. You know, it took them like four or five minutes to get impatient, the crowd, which is good for a drunk and Mohegan Sun crowd. So, uh, yeah, she, she aced it, and she has she has the skills, and I think, in a, if I'm remembering, in her second fight, she showed some tenacity on the ground and wasn't a striker who just, once you get her down, she's cooked. But, uh, yeah, she has a lot of potential. I mean, they have a ton of prospects. In, in each division, they have, at a minimum, several prospects. It's pretty crazy. It's just that a lot of these prospects aren't proven yet. Like Lareda, they haven't really fought someone who has, say, like an 8-1 record or a 9-2 record, someone who's won way more than they've lost. 
But there are other guys like that, like uh, Kyle Crutchman at welterweight. He's 6-0, and but, you know, his career opponents average about 4.3 wins and 3.7 losses across the six. That's the average opponent record. So, so basically, he his combined opponent record is pretty much 500 level, right? Their win-loss differential collectively is 0.7 on the average. Less than a fight. One, less than one more than they've lost in, on average. But he's trained at AK. He's an absolute monster wrestling pedigree. So, I mean, he's like, to me, one of the top prospects in the company. But he's not proven yet. Which is no knock on him. He's still in that building phase. They have other guys that are in that same position. Just in that, like, Joey Davis hasn't really had a major step up. He did fight a guy who's experienced, but... You know, his opponents average just over five wins and just over three losses each across the seven opponents. But he's, you know, four-time Division Two national champ wrestler, undefeated in college at, at freestyle. He lost a folk, I mean, at folk style. He lost a freestyle exhibition, but, um, no, just a massive wrestler and this incre- incredible talent trains with McGee at Team Body Shop. But uh, he's not proven yet. But, you know, two years from now, we might be like Joey Black Eye. Shit. So far, he's looked amazing against guys that are top prospects. Should be convincingly. Question. Do you consider Aaron Pico still a prospect? That's an interesting question. I would actually consider Aaron Pico proven because when he destroyed Andrew Pitbull Higo, who is a badass fighter, I consider that like a proving fight. Like he proved that he can compete at a high level. It's just that he can't consistently win at a high level. So he got a little bit of a step back in his last fight, although he was fighting a tough guy who had just beaten a tough guy. You know, he wasn't like, they didn't start giving him someone who was eminently beatable. And Daniel Scary carries the series, dude. He came back to win his last fight. So Pico, I would say, is actually proven. He jumped in real soon in his career. And uh, he did have some steps back. So I would say he is still a prospect and that we don't know what he's going to end up being. But I would say he's actually kind of proven himself at a high level. Pico doesn't lose to scrubs. You know what I mean? Or to guys who are also ran. Hmm. What, about, what about Aaron, Adam Borix? Oh, Borix is great. But uh, he just, he didn't have it for Cowboy. And Cowboy, uh, by the way, scary dude. He doesn't have those cardio issues and he moves pretty quick. You know, I mean, he's used to bantam weight, so he moves pretty quick at featherweight. He's nimble. And he doesn't seem to gas without that extra 10-pound weight cut, so. I don't really hold that loss against him. It was just too much too soon. But he's looked phenomenal otherwise. Yeah, that's a, that's a great rising talent right there. Serious guy. Yeah, I got to ask. Do you consider Jake Hager a prospect? Or is he just there to have just those weird freak show fights? Kind of like what Bobby Lashley used to be when he did MMA. Well, the thing is, Hager, I think he had a collegiate background, right? Yes. Yeah. Former All-American wrestler and former football player at the University of Oklahoma. I'd say because it's heavyweight and because the big guys, a lot of times it's maturity on how to steer all that power that helps them get to their prime, not necessarily how old they are because you don't necessarily lose your power. It's more like intelligence. He is a prospect of sorts, but I think he's in his mid-30s. So, you know, he's got maybe three or four years before all those injuries start catching up. The lifelong injury, you know, from going way back to the rest of the day. So he's a prospect, but I don't consider him like a prospect on the level of like a Steve Mowry or a Tyrell Fortune or Valentin Moldavsky level heavyweight prospect. Those guys are like the future. Hager could have a good run. He's a big guy. He's very athletic. But I think he's there as much for the name value as for the potential to be a champion. I'd be surprised if he was the crop of up-and-coming guys who became champions. No doubt. Yeah. 
And the, the last person um, that I know of that, you know, you know also, you know, has a 2-0 record in MMA right now, Dylan El Jefe Dennis. Where do you consider him on the on the prospect level? Is he... Is he Sorry, I gotta get my serious? customary hatred in for him. <laughs> is he a serious roster member of Bellator, or are they just gonna bring him in for the occasional fight? On uh, you know, just because they know that people want to see him lose eventually against people that he will never lose against. I guess you could say. Statistically, I mean, he hasn't fought anyone yet, so the jury's out on him even more so than guys like Joey Davis or Kyle Krushmer or Justin Berlinson or Constantine. This area of like, or even like Hobson Grace Jr. I mean, there's a lot of welterweight. You know, Keith Crosby, although he's moving toward lightweight. You know, he has two wins, but his his two opponents average 2.5 wins and three losses. So their win loss differential is negative. So like, he has a, he literally hasn't done anything yet. So the jury's out on him. But he's a good grappler. He's not like the best grappler in the world. But he's definitely a world class grappler from a with a with a quality lineage studied under a master. So there's potential there, but he's like a jury out kind of guy. There's no telling what he can do, but his social media presence means he's getting paid. Rightly so. He gets them a lot of shine. He can just tweet out like, fuck you, and it gets like 5,000 likes or something stupid on Twitter. So they love him. But do, you think that Dylan, but do you think that Dylan Dennis's ego is only going to potentially get him a more severe ass kicking down the line? I think everyone will try to kick his ass anyway, just as hard. No, I just he's playing the game. He's self-aware. He knows what he's doing. He does cool stuff, too. You know, uh, like, a, like with the bullying, the anti-bullying. And today I saw on Twitter he was, like, you know, feeling good, want to send out some money to people who are struggling, give me a cash app or whatever, you know. I mean, he does cool stuff. He, he plays both sides of the thing. So, you know, I, I laugh at how he triggers people. But he's aware of what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Um, I also, you know, we should have maybe asked it before since we talked a little bit about it before, but listen, we know we're shooting the shit on Bellator, so we're, we don't have a, we don't have a fucking run sheet or anything, so I'm just going to ask it anyway. And this is another question from, uh, Charles Fraga at Fragnificent KW, uh, and he asks a very good question. What are some realistic, and he puts realistic as no UFC or one fighters, co-promotion battles with Bellator fighters you'd like to see in the near future? So I guess we could connect that to Ryzen. We talked a little bit about Michael Chandler and Tofik. Um, and so, well, I will also add that Sakaki Barra has said that he wants to have this big, gigantic MMA Olympic show in this summer that will have MMA, kickboxing, grappling, he wants to invite all promotions, UFC, KSW, One, K1, every promotion, you know, under, you know, kind of like the old K1 Dynamite shows, or come, bring your best and all that shit, so... Let's say a fight, a show like that happens. Well, um, Scott, first of all, we have to, you know, read off the rest of the comment that Charles Frager put down. Is that by realistic, he means no UFC or 1FC fighters, since Dana White has tendencies of being a little biz-notch. And Chatri Sityatong is full of grandeur, so to speak, has delusions of grandeur. So, yeah, so, uh, Team, I'm going to throw it to you. I mean, we talked about Chandler versus Tofik, Patricio versus Tofik. Uh, uh, Scott Coker, let's say he's, you know, five co-promotion fights with Ryzen. Which fights would you make under such a show banner? Well, the first one that springs to mind would be Kerry Melendez fighting 
Reyna. I think that fight would be fire. And Carrie's, you know, she's still in her build. You fight, she's done well, but she's still being built up. But I would love to see that fight, especially if she got a, maybe a fight in before they did that. Another fight experience. But it's, I think the weight's close enough. It wouldn't be too crazy. I think I'll make for a great fight. I think I'd like to see Patrick Mix fight Ishwatari. I'd love to know what you guys think about that matchup. Christian, I think you probably agree. The one caveat is Ishiwatari's coming off a loss. I think with the way that Mix has been winning his fights, he only deserves a winner, somebody who's won a fight. So I would like to say perhaps sub in Ishiwatari. Sub him for Ogikubo. Maybe. Um, I don't know. I think that... I mean, I don't know. I think... It would probably be Patrick Meeks versus Hiromaso Gikubo that would get me excited about that particular fight. But I think that a better crossover fight would probably be, I mean, aside from Tension versus Takaru, obviously, is what everybody wants. I think a better crossover fight would probably be, uh, it would probably have to be, I'm sorry, I'm just drawing blanks here. But I think the better crossover fight would have to be Kyoji Horiguchi versus... Well, shit, Juan Archuleta? That would be an amazing fight. I hope to see that at some point. But how about this? How about Patrick Nix fighting Victor Henry? Well, Victor Henry, the cash back. Patrick Nix, the submission expertise, that would be sweet. Yeah, that I would be sweet. Yeah. But I think it would also be kind of one-sided, though, because if you think about it, Victor Henry, and we talked to him before, Andrew, he is a catch-wrestling wizard. He knows how to utilize catch-wrestling to his advantage. It's something that, you know, Patrick Mix would have to train hard for, right? Oh, I don't doubt that, but here's the you know, I think that uh, Patrick Mix has, has proven himself to adapt to whatever... Listen... When he submitted, uh, I I picked him to win against Yuki Matoya. I did not pick him to submit Matoya in about two minutes in the first round. And for Matoya, who hasn't been submitted officially, who hasn't been fit, submitted since I think it was wow, I think it was maybe like before 2010, maybe. I think we you saw that Patchy Mix is not afraid. Hey, if you're known as a submission guy, I have no problem going on the ground with you. Oh, you're a guy who's you know you know known as, as a stand-up guy. I have no problem standing up with you. I think that Patchy Mix has shown to be a guy who's not afraid to adapt to the situation and who's you know who rests on his laurels to win a fight. Right. I think it looked easy. He made that fight look easy, but kind of scary. He was like he made the little adjustments, and that was it. Like, I got you, dude. As soon as they went down, he was like, I got you. Which is scary when you're talking about a guy when he's fighting someone who's more than capable down there, you know, to make it look easy. But, like, if you see how Bandeas fought with Archuleta and the tough fight and his ability to win, and B. Gallagher, who's a submission expert, and Nix made Bandeas look fucking simple. Again, very scary, very sort of like, wow, okay. You know, like, that's when you know a guy's really special. So I think fighting Victor Henry is perfect kind of stylistic booking where you have two submission experts from different disciplines who are both hot right now and it's sort of if Victor Henry isn't fighting Ogakobu for the title I would love to see Nick fight him maybe have Archuleta fight for the vacant rising title that would be fun 
Ryzen rolls Archuleta. I have a question. Um, now, what about heavyweights? Now, Ryzen's heavyweight division is well, is not, clearly not as vast as Bellator's. Well, what interesting fight could you make for a Bellator-Ryzen crossover at heavyweights? Well, to be honest, it would be simple. It would have to be Amir Ali Akbari, considering if he ever returns to the Ryzen ring against somebody the likes of Chet Congo. <laughs> Or maybe Rory Nelson. I thought he was signed with, uh, wasn't he signed with UFC? He got fired, and I don't think Absolute Championship Akmat wants him back either, at least for the time being. Well, if Father Ryzen doesn't want him either, because, you know, kind of just leaving the promotion like he did. Perhaps, I don't know. I mean, um, if anything, I don't think... if anything, I think if you would have to pluck one of the light heavyweight guys into the heavyweight division, obviously it would have to be Jake Kuhn versus Ryan Bader. Yeah, but Bader's going to be busy. He's got work to do in Bellator. I, I think, uh, and we'll definitely talk about what type of fight uh, should they book for their return show. I think definitely they're going to be trying to book that Nemkov-Bader uh, uh, match. I think that was a match that they were really banking on to be like a high-level uh Light heavyweight title match, you know the, uh, uh, especially you know Ben Cop with Fedor uh, in his uh, corner and all that shit. So you know what? Uh, you know what? I got it. How about if the whole Nimcall Bader fight doesn't go down? And it, I mean, obviously we doubt that. If the whole Bader Nimcall fight doesn't go down, how about Hume versus Nimcall? That would be a good fight. I don't think they will peel Nemkov out of the title race because he's Fedor's protege. I mean, he's not just one of Fedor's proteges. He was, like, hand-picked, I think, in 2015 at the amateur event at a Russian amateur, you know, a Russian union event. Like, Fedor was like, come train with the team. Um, he would tell him. What, don't accept the fight. That's, sorry. Christian? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm trying to listen. My thing kind of cut out Stop. for a second. I was going to say that Fedor probably would tell Nemkov, don't accept the fight. Don't ruin your chances for a possible title fight. Wait out. Because you know, also, you know, being that he works with Fedor, he knows Fedor has been around. I think Fedor would, would advise him, just don't accept any fight that's offered to you. It's, it's possible. I don't know who his management is or if he has management or if he just has Fedor sort of like guide him. But uh, I wouldn't think that Bellator would offer that fight. Yeah. I don't think Nemkov is one of the guys they got from Ryzen and they're trying to or indirectly from Ryzen they're trying to hang on to him but maybe in the future but I think I think that Bader Nemkov fight is gonna happen it's, it's, you know it really just makes all the sense because Nemkov beat Davis and you know he's alone in beating Davis other than Bader lately so it's kind of like you know the pecking order is a pretty clear one two three in the division especially if they didn't get Jerry so I think that's likely to stay in there but um, they have other guys I have an interesting uh, heavyweight fight to make, uh, and I'm kind of breaking my own rule of putting winners versus winners, loser versus losers, but I'm going to break it anyway because I don't give a shit. Uh, big Country, Roy Nelson versus Rocky Martinez. <laughs> that would be, oh, a, be fun. That would be a fun, super big boy fight, you know? <laughs> I mean, the only thing is... How the hell will Roy Nelson be able to handle Rocky Martinez? Because if we've seen in his last few fights, aside from Carl Badwater, Sumano Tapa, Roy Nelson hasn't been all that dominant, and especially in the Miracle Krokop fight, which obviously Krokop got screwed over in his last fight, 
he wasn't really doing much. Yeah, that's true. Well, I guess also, um, if you wanted to do, uh, trying to think, uh, who's Matt Mitchell's, who's, who's Mitchell's last opponent again? Yeah, he got knocked out by Karatanov in the rematch, and he was scheduled to fight Ronnie Mark in lieu of Josh Barnett fighting him at the March event they canceled at 241. I wouldn't mind seeing Mitrion under Ryzen rules. Maybe Mitrion take you, and that would be a fun fight. I think that'd be. A, I think that's an interesting fight. You know, actually, I wouldn't be surprised if they like even trained together. I feel like those two are like. I can see those two being at a bar together. But, I, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing, because, like, Frank Mir, he fought Roy Nelson in, in, like, it wasn't officially a loser-go-home fight, but Coker was kind of saying, hey, sometimes you got to let these guys go, we'll see who wins. But maybe Mir won the fight, you know, maybe have Mir go over and fight Roki. That could be fun. Because he's not shot. He's not what he used to be, but he can still fight. He still has poise. Even in the Fatal fight, he was looking good at first. It's just that you don't want to get into these sort of chaotic moments with Fatal because he drives that. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Um, now, the question is, now, you do a fight in Japan, and you need a welterweight fight. You need to book MVP, in my personal opinion. MVP so versus Kichi Strasse. Right MVP yep. versus Kichi Strasse Kunimoto. We already know what you're going to say. Uh, no, no. I think Kunimoto is 0-2 in, uh, in uh, Bellator right now, I think. So I would absolutely oh, not put that fight. Shit. Well, yeah. then, how about... Michael Venom Page versus Keith to K. Tarl Nakamura. I feel like welterweight's a tough division. They don't really have a welterweight division. The Bellator's is jam-packed. It would almost be better to take two Bellator welterweights and have them fight in the rising ring. Do MVP daily two under rising rules where they'll get stood up. <laughs> and where they have to do nothing but action, pretty much. I have MVP number four in the division and daily number six. So they could still have like Larkin and Amazov fight the number one contender and then have Daly and Page rematch and rise in well Douglas a fight Gegard Mousasi for the vacant middleweight title then nothing is held up they can do the rematch and it'll be under rules where they have to fight hmm exactly so what is MVP's status right now with Bellator I, you know he, he had the uh, the Bellator win over uh, Shinzo and Zari so I mean Anzai not Anzari Anzai I'm sorry well, how do you say Enzari the fucking comedian? Anzai. <laughs> um, so I believe he has one more fight on contract, and uh, but he said he expected to work something out with him. I'm pretty sure he has one more. Is he going to be doing a title fight probably for his next fight? Or, or you know, was it, I know we talked a little about with the Bellator Japan show. What is it looking like going to be his next fight in Bellator? So the way the division is panned out, like Coker publicly said, if Larkin won in Japan, he was pretty much the guy. He said, we'll see what happens. But he said he's pretty much the guy in his eyes. I have it ranked Lima, Larkin, Amazov, then MVP, then Fitch, then Daly, and then Koreshkov, number seven. So you could have MVP fight Koreshkov, Daly, maybe even Fitch, although that would kind of be setting him up to get embarrassed. Fitch is just too good at that grind. Lace the legs and embarrass him, you know. But I feel like I feel like if Lima's fighting Musasi still, then Larkin should fight Amazon to see who gets the title shot. MVP should have to beat someone badass to, to get a title shot. Even though I haven't ranked pretty high in the division, I haven't the third contender. But uh, I like the daily rematch. Just do it under rules where they can't stall. Or Koreshkov. Although I think Koreshkov will take him down and submit him. 
you know what? Come to think of it, I mean, I just realized we can have one more fantasy fight, and I know this would kind of be breaking the rules of not having any 1FC fighters on, but how about this? How about Shinya Aoki versus Mikuru Asakura? against someone who's like a current top five lightweight. Didn't he say that, didn't Tofik suggest fighting him as well? I guess so. I seem to remember that. That seems, that's in my mind for some reason that Tofik said he would want to fight Aoki. Um, but my guess is probably, I don't know, maybe uh, Aoki has the uh, Liger, um, Jushin Liger, uh, contract where he can basically go anywhere he wants because he's Aoki. So who knows? Maybe maybe that could be an exception. Um, a question about Bellator related question, team. So they don't do rankings. Why and, and why why don't they do rankings? And should they adopt their own ranking system? Well, I think the reason they don't do rankings is it gives them flexibility. The same reason, like, the UFC doesn't do genuine rankings. They do, like, a facade of ranking to give, you know, casual fans something to look at and be like, oh, this guy's number four, you know, which they'll pay more attention to the fact maybe the guy's lost two in a row. But like, oh, he's number four out of these 60 guys. Don't think about it too hard. You know, I don't know if Bellator would be in their interest to do a genuine ranking. I would love to see that. I would actually love to see the Ali Act and have MMA be ranked in a coherent manner. In oh, the way you they mean have to, like the USA to, like basically like the USA Today rankings or something? No, no, I mean like like in boxing, they have different sanctioning bodies have their own rankings, but each of them have to actually submit, like they have to be able to write down and submit like how they rank fighters. So fighters and their management can look at this and figure out how to gain ranking. It's got nothing to do with the promotion. Oh, I mean, the promotions okay. try to get some of the fights that raise their ranking, but it's not actually controlled. So never made the promoters control the ranking. And we see um, what that means is they can get their better money value out of the athletes because they can control, like, say, the high-paid guys who are getting opportunities so they get the most bang for the buck. Right. It's not so much like that in boxing. In boxing, also, people hit free agency much more easily. You know, you don't have to, like, if you're holding a belt, you can still become a free agent. You know, there's no champion's clause. Or you can basically bounce from promoter to promoter. Right. You can, well, I mean, it, contracts run out. There are limits on them under the Ali Act. So that's what I would advocate. As far as the promoters doing their own ranking, I mean, it might be helpful. But uh, with Bellator specifically, they do a pretty good job. For, like, I, I, I rank them on paper, and I started doing it electronically now. I'm working on Stuff, but uh, they do a pretty good job adhering to something approximating a ranked sport. Like, they don't give too many title shots. But I'm like, what the fuck was that? Or where you have to kind of like, forget, you, you kind of have to understand why it's a silly shot. I mean, that, like, maybe once in a while, like, Sakara fighting Carvalho in Italy. But he, I mean, he was coming off wins, but he wasn't really like the guy. But it was a weak division at the time, you know. I think I, think I was the fight. But that was a long time ago, you know. They don't really do much of that. It's like sometimes in the UFC, it seems like they're just trying to figure out the best value for the company 
on who gets the opportunity. Bellator is more like there's the TV product, so they're more like who's the guy, who is the guy. So anyway, you know, personally as a fan, I'm, I've been pretty happy with how they book. Hmm. Do you think they should though adopt some sort of ranking system? Um, perhaps sooner rather than later. They could. It might gain more fan interest or give fans something to latch onto. I'd be down for it. They stick me on the panel. I think about that shit enough. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it might be something. It might be something. I wouldn't say it's something they shouldn't do, but I just don't know how meaningful it will be, or if it will be the realities of booking fight sports when it's like a closed loop, like rather than boxing when you do have crossword stuff, champions fighting each other. The promoter is almost incidental when you get to a championship level because the champions want to unify belt, and that's the money fight. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe. What do you think? I think that there should be some sort of, maybe not even top ten. Uh, I, I know that Bellator is a little, you know, just run differently than UFC and other promotions, but... I would say at least for fighters who have more than four or five fights on a contract, I guess you can, those could be considered full-time fighters. Like, okay, like Valerie Reda. Listen, she should not be ranked because she's only had two fights at Bellator in her division and really, like, I don't, I would not, I don't think it's a full-time fighter. But obviously, you need someone who's a contender. You need to know, I would think it's a good way to know who's, who's close contention versus who is a contender. You know, like a three yeah. or four or five, you know, uh, puts that, it makes it much easier. And also, I think it also helps the fighters knowing where they stand, I think. I like, I like, yeah, I like the idea. And, um, yeah, I don't think it would screw them up too much, although it might, they might screw the management would use that as leverage to ask for new contract things. I don't know. I don't know how... Yeah, that's also, I think it also helps the fighters as well, you know, if, you know, potentially losing a number two or three ranked fighter to UFC or, uh, you know, I, like, uh, could get the, connect them more money. But also, you know, you know, let's just say, if a fi- uh, you know, a new fan wants to get familiar with, uh, with who are the best fighters in Bellator. I think a ranking system uh, uh, by Bellator could be like, oh, you know, click here for our top five women's flyweight rankings, top welterweight rankings. Because it will get them familiar with who fight fans should pay attention to, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And I mean, I'm going to start ranking the division. I'll probably do like bloody elbow fan posts or something. I've always been, I've always gotten the, the impression that Scott Coker is not really a guy though, who really is a rankings guy, you know, going with his history and strike force. I mean, the old Bellator, you kind of had an idea, you know, the Bjorn Rebney era, you, it kind of, with the tournament structure, it was kind of within a ranking system of itself in a, in a, in a roundabout way. But oh, since, yes, tournament. So I guess, you know, you can at least, you know, when this featherweight tournament's over, you can get a presuming of who are the top featherweights in Bellator. But yeah, I, you know, I know Strike Force. I don't think Strike Force had any official rankings as far as I remember. Um, yeah, he never struck me as a guy who really, like, who, who, who's, a, who's, a, who's a big rankings guy, like a Dana White. Dana White's all about the rankings. Or at least, like, what one was. Yeah, I mean, it's gotten to the point now that the UFC used the rank to just maintain someone's name. So you'll see someone lose a title fight, but they're the number one contender still. Which doesn't make any sense. Obviously, you just lost. Either as a contender or a champion, you're not the number one contender because you just lost a fight. So it, it's kind of got...
just like the right guy gets the shot. And, you know, they usually get it pretty close. But uh, I think the real answer is the Ali Act. And so the rankings would be removed from the promoter's control. And then the promoters really work for the fighters at that point. Because if you're a top-ranked fighter and there are limits on how long your contract can last, and there's no champions clause, you know, champions will hit free agency. Now the promoters literally work for the top fighters because they have to keep them happy. If they're unhappy, like Eddie Hearn is trying to keep Anthony Joshua happy. If he doesn't, he'll go somewhere else. He has a lot of rights. And it doesn't take that long for the contracts to expire. So MMA is still a baby sport with a really draconian structure for the athlete. But it will change. Oh, yes. Yeah, hopefully for the better. Um, and actually, speaking of... Uh, 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 well, I have a question. So, Bellator, Scott Coker just came out and said that they're, that they're eyeing perhaps coming back in the summer to restart. I don't know if he gave a specific date or month or anything of that sort, but I know he said the summer. So, my question for you, Teep, is for the main card, at least, what would you say would be the best book show that Bellator could book for the return? Well, honestly, the, the fight cards that they did have planned out, the three cards that were pretty fully booked, which was 241 in Connecticut and 242 in uh, San Jose and then and then Bellator London. I'd like to see those cards just reinstated and then book up the rest of the cards. If they plan to make up the event, then all the athletes are going Although maybe make a few changes, maybe not have daily fight Hamasi, maybe have daily fight MVP in London. Maybe switch it up a little bit, so there are some opportunities there. But I, I, I think, you know, the, the fights they had booked, if everyone's on pause, fights they had booked were good. And I, I would think maybe a couple changes could happen for the better, but for the most part, they've been nailing it. Like Fabian Edwards is fighting Vanstina. That's the damn fight. There's no, you know, you can't really improve on that because that was the fight for, you know, like who's Bellator's best Western Europe middleweight, not Damien Sass. They, they can figure it out. You know, but a lot of the fights like that, the tournament and the things, so I mean, they hadn't really announced a lot, to be honest, as far as compared to like what their schedule for the year would be. So they, they still have a lot of fights that weren't, you know, spoken of. They probably had figured out. So I'd like for them just to get back running, make up the event keep going like they were they're killing it right now what about you guys hmm. would you change a card would you make like a super card a return card or would you just bring everything back to be honest i think i would make a super card it's just the fact that you would have to add it with a few fights that got canceled or a few fights that may end up being non-existent if it don't get booked immediately <clears throat> i think what you have to do, you have, well, first of all, you have to come to the realization that you know it might be a, a might be a card we might lose a lot of money on. Mm-hmm. But I think besides that, you kind of have to cap get a card that captures people's attention. I don't think it could be one of those, you know, one of the C level shows that that Bellator puts on where they have mostly people who are, I'll say, Wikipedia less who don't have a Wikipedia account. So basically what you're saying is put fighters who actually have name value on the card. Those that actually have easy ways for you to access what they look like. Their Wikipedia accounts. Their, I mean, a lot of their info, pretty much. Yeah, basically. Um, well, I don't know what, what the travel world would be like. Well, you know, 
getting fighters from out of the United States would be in that time you may not be able to do uh, Bader versus Nemkov. So what you can at least do is finish up the featherweight tournament. Maybe even have it on the same, you know, do a PFL thing. Have it on the same day, perhaps. Uh, finals being the main event. Aren't all the fighters in that from the United States, I believe? Well, the thing is, the issue with that would be is there, um, there are six fighters left. So McKean Cowboy in the semifinals now. But then uh, Patricio and Carvalho is going to fight the winner of that fight, the winner of Weishel and Sanchez, and then they fight the winner of McKee Cowboy. So you couldn't really do all of that one night. Oh. I have to double, double tap the competition. I definitely think you have to get someone to, you know, make, get, you know, get Dylan Dance on the card because you know people are going are gonna to tune in if he's on. I would even say maybe Jake Hager. Uh, and they put Dennis and Hager on there. You could you could load up. They could load up the prelims in a way that there was a lot of name value. Yeah. But who would you also, book? But who would you book Dennis or Hager against? Especially in the case of Hager, considering the fact that he's only got two Bellator fights and a lot of his business, as we've seen on Wednesday, is being done in AEW. Oh, I mean they'd be fighting regional guys unless they fought some other. Damn you guy, like, okay, we'll do Jake Hager versus James Haskell or something, you know, but like that. You know what? If that fight yeah. happens, if that fight happens, I think that would get a lot of publicity, especially if Haskell beats a former WWE World Heavyweight Champion in Hager. And that would be a fight that would have traction in the U.S. and in England, because, I mean, England, I don't is a big deal, because, you know, rugby is way bigger than fighting. Or than MMA is over there. Like mm-hmm. my folks knew Haskell. They didn't know he was fighting, but they knew he was, of course, because their names they, they're fighting, really? You know? So yeah, I don't think it even has to be the best card, but it has to be a card that gets people talking. Also, you know, hopefully it'll be on both Paramount and the zone as well, hopefully. If it's in the US. But if it's overseas it's, it's almost better when it's not on Paramount because then it's just it's available live. Mm-hmm. The Paramount shows the numbered car, the part like the numbered main events that are overseas the ones sometimes get taken away. I see. I see. Um, but I think it will also have to just be well. I think the likelihood of, of a car being overseas, though, even in the summer, is probably going to be very, very unlikely. Um, studio. It seems likely that just the first couple cards will be done in the studio, and they'll just have to figure out a way to make them. I hope they jam some music while they fight. That would make up the difference to me. You know what I mean? Play some like good, lively soul music, some some kind of music when they fight. Or uh, you know what? Have it be like a damn Muay Thai fight. Get a live band to be there. Oh, I'd be all over that. That would be phenomenal. Um, <laughs> or even like they could switch up. They could say, okay, so these are all five round fights because it's in the tournament. So you let each athlete pick the music for each round. Yeah, but some music just wouldn't fit, you know? You don't want to get into the middle of a fight and have, like, pop music play in the background. Not pop music. It doesn't have to be pop music, but you could have them, you know, I always listen to music with my fights anyway. So for me, that would just mean I wouldn't have to have the Marvin Gaye and Al Green and shit on. <laughs> yeah, well, but, you know, you know having that man. Marvin Gaye and having that Al Green play in the background would be like taking it back to when you were a child getting your ass whooped with a leather belt. 
Not quite, but I love that music my whole life. So I, you know, I, I play music. It usually soul music or, or rock steady, reggae, something like that during fight. That's why, you know, I prefer my clips that way, fight clips. I like that music, like NFL films back in the day. That's how they made that so epic. Mm-hmm. It was the music and the and the slow motion and everything like that. That's my shit. That's the stuff that my, one of my first loves in sport when I was a kid, so. Understood, understood. What about uh, one of the Gracies? Oh, I feel like God. one of the one of the Gracie on a card. You have all the Gracie, you know. It, it would basically it would basically be flight of the Mohegans all the way through because they always tend to come out to that particular tune of music. Yeah, so they got Neiman Gracie. He's coming off the loss to Rory, and I think he was supposed to fight Logan Storley and have to pull out in Hawaii, I believe. But anyway, he's nine and one now. So they got Neiman Gracie, and they got Hobson Gracie Jr. He's three and zero, also a welterweight. Then they've got Conry Gracie, two and one. He won his last two. He lost his debut and won his last two. So they have those three Gracies. They might even have some more. They got at least those. They could slap those on a comeback card. That would be cool. To my knowledge, none of them were booked. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of athletes they hadn't announced fight for. You could put Raymond Daniels on there against a warm body. Cause, I mean, he's only had three fights. He's had two fights in the last 10 years. He had one way back in the day. He lost. But the win-loss differential his opponents is very small. They have like four wins, two and a half losses each. The three guys he fought. I mean, the, the two guys he beat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like him against anyone like and people say oh when's he gonna fight somebody it's like you know they have to understand the fight promotion doesn't want a name to lose when they should be fighting people they're supposed to be you know if you're doing it right they are beating the guys they're they're starting off against because it helps build them into you know their fame potential rises with their with their momentum you know not everyone does it aaron chalmers had some really good pr and great social media stuff but he lost a couple of them so as far as being a prospect, he's still a name in, in the in the UK. But as far as a prospect, it, it, you know he can still prove everyone wrong. You know, whereas like Daniel, he's older but still looking great. Dennis, the two Gracies, Conry and Hobson. You know, the jury's out on these guys. Mm-hmm. They should well, be fighting. Those- who I think you, you, you should definitely get. I don't know how you get them, but um, uh, I and we'll talk about what you. I want to talk about him, um, James Gallagher. Describe yeah, animal. You better. Question though. So, what about where he is in the Bell- in Bellator right now? Is he due for a title shot? Well, like, what is his trajectory going to be? Or is he just a guy they're going to have on the Ireland and UK fight cards? Keep in mind, well, the dude moments. only has one loss in the Bellator cage, and possibly overall. Yeah, so he's like he's five and zero as an amateur. I think, although I think one of those five wins, someone just refused to fight him. I think he's like 4-0, actually he's an amateur. I think he's 10-1 as a pro now. He's really good, the mission specialist. You know, he lost to Bandeas, but we saw since the Bandeas is an absolute badass. See that fight with Archuleta, it's like, Bandeas is the truth. And he just beat, um, oh shit, who did he beat? Beat Franz Malambo in a mm-hmm. tough fight, because that guy's enormous, but he beat him, knocked him out on one leg. Just beautiful, gave him a double tap off of the one leg, you know, just very good presence, you know, and he moved down to Florida. Bandeas did the ATT to, like, take, you know, change his whole life to center it around his fighting. So he's a badass guy. So Gallagher losing to him, especially Gallagher's like, I think he's like 22. Mm-hmm. But losing a fight at 22 doesn't mean much. What means a lot is the fact that he's won a lot of fights. 
shown a lot of skill. And he's not hit his prime. He probably won't hit his prime for two or three years, short of a of bad injury, you know. He's going to get better and better for the next few years. So he's not in line for a title shot, I don't think. But if he beat Cal Eleanor, maybe he would have been. If they do get that fight on, or maybe the winner of that fights somebody for the right to fight for the title. I'd like to see Patrick Mix fight for the title. I don't think anyone has a better case than him to bantamweight. Especially because he's schooled Bandeas and is undefeated pro and amateur. You know, what do you guys think? you think he's the guy? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, he just, he did re-sign belts, I think, right? Didn't he need something re-sign them last month, I think? Yeah, that's what they needed to do. Take a guy like that who's like the future. He's young. He's got this incredible momentum and a lot of presence. You know, he's an interesting guy, compelling guy, and uh, lock him down. Keep him in the show because that division's getting really good. They've got some people now. they got some stuff to work with. They need to keep a guy like him. He's integral to the future of the division. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you guys, how would you see a fight between Patchy Mix and James Gallagher going? It would basically be so violent, so action-packed, so brutal that I have a certain guarantee that it wouldn't even make it out of the first round if it does make it out of no, wait, actually, I have a feeling that that fight would not make it out of the first two rounds. Least alone the first two minutes. Who do you have winning? Mix? Probably Mix. But I wouldn't be surprised if Gallagher would win in actuality. I definitely think that's a Mix. I, th- I think... I, I don't presume it would... It would it, I mean... I think, I think I'd have to give that overwhelmingly to Mix at this point. Especially with the competition he's faced versus James Gallagher, uh, who James Gallagher has. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, I, we see what Gallagher can do against opponents at his higher level, but then he gets beaten by somebody like Ricky Bandeas, and then Bandeas gets defeated, gets backpacked and choked out by Mix in, what was it, about a minute, a minute and a half? And then what, uh, and then, uh, and then what, uh, not Bandeas, uh, Mix it to Yuki Matoya. I think that, I think that, Mix is, is five steps above Gallagher. But I think it's still a really compelling fight to make. And I hope it comes down at some point. Yeah, I, I agree with that uh, 100%. And I think, I think, I think Mix, uh, if we count Haraguchi when he returns, I think Haraguchi, Mix, and Archuleta are the best bantamweight in the fight for Bellator. I think, you know, they have, they have a lot of tough guys, but I think both three guys, Marchuleta, I mean, obviously, he's a badass, but featherweight, he's been a regional champ of bantamweight. He's a serious guy. He has, he can make that weight. He's not particularly big featherweight at all. And, uh, but I think, so I think, you know, maybe like the winner of Gallagher versus Eleanor fighting someone for the right to challenge the winner of Patrick Nick, Marchuleta, that would just be choice. But, uh, Marchuleta's the featherweight alternate. So that might tie things up. They might keep it in the 145. Uh, uh, what about what, what about uh, Baby Slice, Kevin Ferguson Jr.? Now, I think that they were banking on him to be you know his father. I think that the better fight for him, I keep asking Aaron Chalmers if he would ever fight him. He just brushed him off, but obviously it was the other way around. You know, Baby Slice saying he want nothing to do with them and vice versa. But as far as Baby Slice goes, I know you were just about to say they were trying to build him like his father. But 
I think for him, it's already hard enough that he has to carry on the burden of his dad's name and legacy. It's even harder enough for him trying to fight his way out of the undercard now, considering the fact that he's been given so much hype from the get-go that it's hard for him to just get rid of him. I think that when it comes down to Kevin Ferguson Jr., a.k.a. Baby Slice, he has an opportunity to be that top prospect. He just needs to find a way to finish people. Well, yeah, and he's young, he's young in his career, so the jury's still out on him. You know, like some of these guys, they, they've got a name because they've got a bigger platform than if they weren't in the company. Mm-hmm. So people know about before they've really got seasoned. And he's completely unseasoned. He lost his debut, and then he won three. And then he lost to Corey Browning, who is a badass guy who also beat Chalmers. And then he, he would have won his own his last fight, but then it got overturned to a, a no contest. They said that part of the finishing sequence were illegal strikes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so in his last five fights, he's only actually lost one. And that was Corey Browning. Who's a badass dude? No joke. Corey Browning's serious. And, uh, so I think, you know, like, he's, he's shown a lot of promise. It's just he's not looked like the constant world beater like some of the other prospects, like Crutchmer or um, Joey Davis, where these guys have looked absolutely just destroying people, highlight real fashion, or just like, you know, like, like textbook style, destroying them. You know, not all the prospects build at the same speed, and some of them don't pan out, but I think the jury's out on him. But he's shown promise, and he's a better fighter than his dad, but it's a different time, you know, he's in a different kind of division. You can be a better martial artist, but if the people you're fighting, if the attributes needed are different, you know, like the standard is higher for being young in this kind of this kind of company. That's how it goes. It's all good. He's been entertaining, you know, and he's getting money off his dad's name. It's not that hard for him. I mean, it's hard for him. He's got a lot of weight to bear on his shoulders, but he's also getting a paycheck that mm-hmm. reflects the fact he's the son of one of these legends. That's just how it goes. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel bad for him. I'm happy for him. You know, he's helping. Just, you know, his father's legacy and just keep following his father's footsteps. So I'm happy for him. I think it's good. He's getting paid. It's hard for these guys. Let him get some money. Exactly. Now, so uh, let, Andrew, let me ask you, you guys a question. Okay. Uh, yeah, I got a bellicose question for you guys. Okay, so Vader is in his absolute prime. Jacked up Fado with left hand. He jacked up Kimo with left hand. He was jacking up Congo with his left hand. He was wobbling Congo, who we've seen win a lot of fights in a row, not being that active. But he's absolutely in his prime. He destroyed Mitrion. He embarrassed Mitrion. Half that crowd, I was there, half that crowd walked out halfway through the third round. <laughs> or last, I think it was three rounds, just because they knew there's no way he's getting up. And uh, and he's fighting Nemkov, Fedor's protege, who's looked phenomenal. Managed to beat Davis in a sort of a close Bill Davis-style fight. Who do you think wins that fight, and how? Andrew, you want to go first? I apologize. Sorry, I was just writing three matches. What was it, the fight? Uh, the most fight, Nemkov versus Vader Nemkov. Well, how do you see that fight going, Andrew? Man, that is a tough one. Um, I think it's a lot tougher than a lot of people. Here's the thing: is that Nemkov is a good. I'll, I'll, I'll even say great fighter. Recent wins, I mean, I think his most impressive win probably was the McGeary fights because I held McGeary in really high regard. And the fact that he basically destroyed both of his legs uh, uh, to win that fight, I think I, that shows, I think we, we, you saw how dangerous he can be. 
The problem is, though, we saw in the Phil Davis fight that, I mean, he won by split decision, but that Phil Davis fight, I mean, apart from the fact there was another boring Phil Davis fight, he did not look as impressive in that win. And then I know he had the, the Carvalho fights, uh, which he did win, but um, am I remembering that the first round was kind of even, T? He schooled Carvalho, but he should have schooled Carvalho, who was, who's a career middleweight moving up. You know, so if Nemkov is a high-level light heavyweight, like a world-class light heavyweight, which he is, he should school uh, a pretty damn good former world champion in middleweight, unless the middleweight has a speed advantage or power translating up, which wasn't the case because Nemkov was faster. No, he schooled him bad. It was a great fight. It's on YouTube. I think Ryan Bader has looked a lot better in his wins against high-level competition. Minus probably the Phil Davis fight, because again, it's Phil Davis. Uh, you know, he, he destroyed Bessel, uh, King Mo, uh, Fedor. Mitchell fight, you know, he fought a smart fight. It was the most exciting, but it was a smart fight. That was as one-sided as the Fedor fight. It was just a long version. Mitchell had no chance in that fight. I think he landed one kick in the whole fight. That was his strike count. Yeah. It was that one-sided. It was, it was almost comical. I was sitting there watching it drunk from the stand. It was funny. on. It was like MVP Daily, but, but one-sided. But it was like funny on several levels watching it. I was like, wow, this is so complete. Because, you know, that's what he said. He said, I'm going to wrestle him. That's his gap. Mitchell said, he knows what my weakness is, but I'm going to work through it, you know? And then and it just went to how people Chicago fights, which went to a no contest. But uh, nonetheless, um, I think... Fair to say, Bader was winning that for the uh, few minutes that it, that it was that it was uh, happening. Um, he, was, he was schooling him. He was about to finish him. Yeah. Congo got punched in the um, it, or poked like punched in the nose or something, and started holding his eye and stuff. He knew he was getting about to You know, and I'm not I'm not a particularly giant fan of Bader or, or against Congo, other than me and Krokop in the nuts, but uh, mm-hmm. everyone in the nuts. Uh, I don't. You know, he got Minikov too. Uh, in his little Vitalis, but uh, you know, like Bader was schooling him. I still hold Congo in high regard, even though he's older. He's a tough guy to beat. He looked good against Minikov. He was giving him tons of trouble, but he was getting destroyed in that fight. Bader was schooling him. I think you definitely have to, you know, I know a lot of people don't want to give Ryan Bader a lot of credit. Um, and if that indication is the fact that nobody talks about him as being a top white heavyweight slash heavyweight despite being double champion, but I, I would have to give Ryan Bader the edge in that match. I think it would probably go to decision, though. I think Ryan Bader would probably work all five rounds, uh, wrestling, holding Nemkov against the cage, trying to negate... I think the one, the one way that Nemkov could win is with a... Uh, is a is not a lucky punch, but just a, a... You know, he has to catch Bader off guard, perhaps, you know... Um, Maybe go for like uh, a jumping knee, like Bader did to Latifi when uh, Latifi tried to go for a takedown of him. Um, I think I, that's I think Nemkov would would would, have, would struggle in that fight because uh, also here his two losses minus the Bill Davis fight uh, where he came close to, lo- to losing. Nemkov has two losses. One was to Jiri and one was to Albrechtson. And the Albrechtson fights well both were in Ryzen. Um, the Albrechtson fight, uh, that was what he had a problem with uh, against Albrechtson, if I remember correctly, was that, yeah, he was basically outwinning the grappling exchanges. 
So if, if that's what Bader focuses on, he can uh, he can get a win that way. I think. I don't think he, I don't think he could finish Nemkov though. I really don't think so. Hmm. Yeah, Come to think of it, I would probably say the same thing, considering the fact that Bader is supposed to be dominant against upperweight class guys, especially in the heavyweight division. He seems to not have too many problems with guys in the heavyweight division. But as far as light heavyweights like Victor Nemkov, he would probably have a problem with how Nemkov operates in the cage. Yep, you what? mean, uh, you mean Vadim. Victor's the one in M1. Shit. My apologies, my apologies. Like Patricio Patricki. Like Patricio Patricki. What, what a... <laughs> Very confusing. Yeah, very it confusing. is very confusing. Point of the matter we is... A, uh, sorry, we, have one, we, we got another question. And the point of the matter is, before you get to that next question, yeah. I do think that Vadim Nemkov would probably surprise a lot of people in a fight against Ryan Bader. That's what I'm trying to say, damn it. Gotcha. Hey, just briefly, guys, if I can, I just want to say as far as that matchup, like, in the wrestling has changed. I'm not sure how it will go because Combat Sambo, of which, you know, Nemkov the four-time world champ, and protege of Fedor, you know, he, uh, that does line up well against folk style wrestling. You know, like, we've seen that before where Sambo can give a lot of trouble to someone who's wrestling because, the you know, transitions between striking and uh, grappling. But also, it stays on the feet. Nemkov is really good with his angles. You know, he pumps double jabs, occasional triple jabs and things. He mixes wide punches with straight punches very well, more than... More than he's not explosive like Fedor, but he's very, very technical on the feet. Very good with low kicks. He's also good at catch and counter against kicks and against, you know, like he pulls a lot of tricks out of the bag. It's almost like he's like supercharged with tricks. And I think he would give Bader a lot of trouble, although Bader is in his absolute prime, and I consider him one of the best in the world. But uh, I do think Nemkov, the combat sample, lines up against wrestling boxers. Well, I just, here's, here's the, the people, the one person who I can recall in my mind, uh, with, uh, who managed to out-wrestle Ryan Bader, probably was John Jones, when John, early in John Jones' career. I think he's the only person who I can, I can, who I've seen, and also Phil Davis, also Phil Davis, um, but for the, for the most part, Brian Baird does not get out-wrestled. And I think against that whole... I, I don't think the combat Sambo background will matter in the end. Uh, well, the specific guys is what comes down to. But stylistically, Nemkov has been blending striking and grappling for a long time, like in, in multiple rules sets. And so his understanding of transitions and things is like a little higher level. We've seen a lot of the high-level Sambo guys like Khabib outstriking Connor. Well, that was partly because he had the understanding of the grappling to take advantage. He had a threat there. Whereas he wasn't like, oh no, Connor might take me down. I better look for that single. You know, he knows he's got that. So like, it's a little different, but uh, I, I love the fights. And I, I think it's, I think it's the absolute best fight that right anyway they can make. Oh, absolutely. Um, but also, I want, since we're on the topic, and since actually this person did ask the question about regarding that fight, I want to ask their part two to this question. This question comes from Liam, who's at Hopman's Liam. Uh, he asked about the, uh, his, his question is two Bellator's biggest title fights, Bader versus Nedikov, which we talked about, and Musasi versus Lima. Who takes those bouts and who do you still have, have 
and who do they still have in May 9th, in your opinion? Um, was that the date that they were that they were that they're thinking of, uh, T? May 9th? Every, the, the May shows are out. Uh, the the one that I don't think they've postponed the June show in Chicago yet. So okay. that's the one not been officially moved. The other ones are gone. They're gonna reschedule. They won't do anything in there. So well, let's, let's let's go with the Musashi versus Lima question. You know, Lima, who is the current welterweight champion of Bellator, Musashi, who just lost the uh, uh, middleweight championship to Lovato, who uh, retired due to injuries, and I believe the title is now vacant. I, I believe they were probably fighting for the vacant. No, Lovato didn't retire due to injuries. He retired due to a damn near fatal disease. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so yeah, obviously title's vacant. They would fight for the title. Uh, who do you think in Musashi versus Lima? Alright, well first off, shout out to Liam. Thanks for the question, brother. Thanks for listening. And uh, I think when fighters move up in weight classes, and they have in boxing, you know, you have to have skill and adjustments with makeup for your power not necessarily translating the same way against larger people. And size is an inherent advantage. And the counter to that is having speed and compensating power. Guys like Hendo, who had the power and speed to fight larger men. Fedor had the power and speed to fight larger men successfully. Both Chenchen had the same thing. Oh, lots of guys. But anyway, so Lima has the power that is likely to translate upward to middleweight. He's extremely hard hitting at welterweight, even against larger welterweight. And the question is, is he fast enough to be able to sneak that power onto Musashi, who's a larger person? Now, Masasi's not a particularly large middleweight, but he's not a welterweight. He's never made 170, and uh, he's competed all the way up to heavyweight, so he's used to We saw in the Rory fight where Rory's speed did not translate up, and his power was negligible in, in, in the exchanges, and he got schooled. And, the, and Masasi was bigger and, and just as fast or faster and crisper. With Lima, it's a little different. Lima is very powerful. He's a light-out type of fighter. Musashi isn't that much bigger than him. Lima's a big guy. He's a little bit taller than Musashi, actually, but in his, he, you know, he's more of a cobra body. He's not, he's not a thick, but he's a, he's a big guy. So I think Lima actually has a really good chance to win this, but he's fighting one of the great multi-weight fighters. So, <laughs> you know, it's like he's, it's a big mountain to climb, but he has a really good shot at doing it. And I think it's just really, it's like Patricio and Chandler. It comes down to, can his, Speed, get him to the target, and does his power translate up against the fighter who's used to fighting more powerful men? Like, Lima won't be the hardest hitting guy Musashi's fought. Not even close. But he might be the fastest guy Musashi's fought, if you think about it. So that's, that's how I see the equation. I give Lima, like, maybe 40%. I lean Musashi by basic advantages and experience, but, uh, you know, very close fight. Maybe 48% chance to win something. Almost half. Almost 50-50. What so, you got? I just also like to say that Douglas Lima, perhaps the most underrated uh, welterweight uh, at this point, and you might be saying, like, why why do you consider him underrated if he's a champion? Uh, because I never see him in any top 10 welterweight rankings that are non-UFC. I don't see his name ever put there. And I remember, I think it was when he won the, the welterweight title from Rory. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, Tyron Woodley still had, did, did he still have the, uh, I think he still had the uh, 
uh, UFC welterweight title. And I was seeing, you know, oh, you know, they ever did like a cross promote uh, on our social media. They ever did a cross promotion with Bellator and UFC. What do we with school Lima? And my God, that could, I think in hindsight, I hope a lot of people who said that realize how stupid that sounds. I think that Lima would destroy Woodley on even his best day. You have to think matchup bad for Woodley. You know, because he likes to, he's like, he's a guy who's comfortable going back to the cage. He's got power. Yes. He does have wrestling. He has the explosive power. But Lima, if you strike with him at range, you're fucked. Whether you're against the cage or not, he's dangerous there. He's dangerous to the back to the cage. He's just anywhere on the feet. No one wants to stand with Lima. And if you look at him in his last, like, 20 fights, no one has stood with him and beaten him. The, the three fights he lost in his last 20, Aspen wrestled him. Koreshkov wrestled him when he had a leg injury, and then Rory wrestled him. Everyone who stood, including Rory in the second fight, said no choice, lost. It doesn't seem then. I believe that would be the case across divisions. I mean, Styles make fights. There might be bad matchups from out there, but yeah. Actually, you know, also, you remember Aspen, he was one of the first, maybe one of the, maybe the first guy to, like, be competitive against. Uh, ben Askren up until that point, who really was like, he, I don't want to say that he that it looked like he was, but he did better than I think most of other Ben Askren's other opponents up until then. You know what? Yeah. Come to think of it, as far as what I would think, as far as the Lima Musashi fight, that would have to be a damn barn burner for me to get interested in it, but. I do say that Musasi, with his experience in big-time title opportunities, especially given the fact that he's dazzled so well in championship fights, especially in his recent Bellator stint and obviously in Strike Force and in Dream, I think that he would probably be the better man and beat Douglas Lima, even oh, though well, Lima... I would also like to add that. Lima was a champion at middleweight uh, way back then. Um, William McDonald, when he went up, I don't think he ever fought at, at middleweight before. That may have been his first time. When he started, he was lightweight. If you watch, like, his early fights when he was in Canada, he was a much smaller guy, and he fought at lightweight. Then he went to welterweight. And that was uh, for maximum fighting championships, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, I would say this. I still think Musashi would win, but I would give Lima a much better shot than Roy McDonald had. I understand you, but I think that Musashi would win just off of experience alone. Now, what was the other fight you said to make an assumption out of? Made an M card. Oh. Hey, I just Well, I yeah, just shit, we it. just talked about that, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I, if I can, guys, I just wanted to mention, like, or reiterate, like, so the thing about Rory moving up is He's not a powerful welterweight. He can strike, but he's not like the guy where he like kills people. He's not like I'm Hendrix or something, you know, where you're like, this guy's power is insane, even though he's capable of stopping people. Lima is the opposite of that. Lima is, isn't necessarily as busy. He doesn't necessarily like crowd a guy. He more stalks somebody. That doesn't work against him because Musashi likes to stalk too. Like, small shuffle set, keep his posture. He doesn't really bounce. Neither of the guys really have much of a bounce, you know what I mean? Some guys, like, dance around a lot. So some guys are more like a tank. They kind of, like, get in position. They use their reflexes and that. Just they they have those direct clashes. Both those fighters are kind of like that. So I actually think stylistically it's a beautiful fight. And I have a feeling that 
Nemo will get the best of the striking exchanges, and then Musashi will sort to wrestling, and then the real battle will be Lima counter-wrestling Musashi. That's how I see it. And if he can, I think Lima can maybe pull it off. But his power is crazy, and he's fast. Guys, Musashi fought stronger guys, not really fought faster guys than Lima. So that power really comes into play, just like with Patricio and Chandler. Patricio had the power, and he was a, had to be put it on Chandler. And, you know, so I think, yeah, I think uh, that's a great fight. Oh, here's the thing. I've seen, you know, Lima does get exhausted. We saw that in both his fights with, uh, with Roy McDonald, that he, you know, as the fight goes on, he, his, his strikes do become weaker. He, you know, he's, he's not as fluid, you know, he, it becomes slower. Now, do you think, do you think at middleweight that would maybe be not, not a thing? Because here's, here's the thing, Musashi at any weight, never get, he's, again, one of those few fighters who just never seems to get tired. You know, uh, it's always joked that when Musashi fights, it looks like he's not even giving a shit. It's kind of just like he's, it's, it's, it, he, he has no game face. His game face is no face at all, kind of. Do you think Fima uh, could have better cardio uh, moving up? I believe so. But plus, Musashi has like the back, has a curvature of the spine that makes him look nonchalant. But he also, he doesn't bounce. He just stands there, you know what I mean? He's not, like if you're watching the Rory fight, he's not bouncing around trying to like, uh, not telegraph his speed and, and he doesn't telegraph but he doesn't really like bounce around and set it up he just snaps it out there and it was killing Rory because he was having trouble because Rory does bounce and he was having trouble timing him because Musashi doesn't give off health he just throws and, it, and when you throw he throws too you know he's got, same thing with Machida Machida was having a lot of trouble timing it because he, there's no bounce there's no moment when he's in the air you know like for guys that have that very subtle timing but um yeah, I think, I think, uh, what was the question? What was your question? I'm about to go off on another tangent. <laughs> no, 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 well, the, the cardio aspects uh, of, 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 of moving up. Because we have seen him, I love the way, but as the fight does go on, you know, once it goes past, you know, once again, the championship rounds, he does get slower. He's still powerful and dangerous, but he does get slower. He, he gets a lot, a lot more telegraphed uh, in, his, in his striking. Uh, um, so... Yeah, that's a great point. I think, I think part of that is he has a tough cut to 170. He's a big guy to drain down to 170. He mentioned that. He mentioned moving up. In a recent interview, he said maybe it's time to go up. I don't know if that means he's not going back down, but it's going to do a lot for him to not have to take off 15 pounds. I mean, he may not have much of a cut at all, you know, just like a, a small cut. by and, and, But at the same time, that's, he won't have that size of being a large he won't be a large middleweight. Mustafi is fought with big guy. He's never had trouble with big guys. So this, I think the speed is his key. But, uh, yeah, I do think we'll see a lot better. Like with Cowboy, when you see Cowboy at featherweight, but nothing like Cowboy at bantamweight. Question. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry, T, go ahead. I was just saying, like, you know, being able to do something for, like, three or four minutes and then being able to do something 15 straight, or in the case of the title fight, 25, you know, like, that's a big difference Lots of guys bring it hard early, and the opponent knows it. And if you live through that, now you're talking, you know, so it's an energy conservation battle. But without the weight cut, Lima can be active without that kind of drain of having been through the crazy dehydration. But I think you, you make a good point. That that will be good for him, but he's fighting a guy who's really fucking good to stand up himself. Probably world class, though. Jabs versus low kicks. Now, what about on the grappling side? Obviously, we know that Musashi has submitted... 
scores of people. Um, uh, but what about, do you think Lima has any sort of, do you think if it goes down to the ground, is that, some, is that something Lima should avoid? Yeah. yeah, he should avoid that. Not because he doesn't have ground skills, like you saw in the Kreshkov fight. Kreshkov won panic wrestling because Lima punched and kicked so hard. And then he outgrappled him too. Once, once he got tired trying to take him down. But I think Lima should keep it upright at all costs, unless he's losing in the stand-up. Then he can maybe mix it up to just try and get Musashi to throw off. But Musashi so fast. You saw in the Rory fight. The moment Rory decided to try and wrestle, Musashi just owned his soul. He was like, he was waiting for him to do it. He's like, I'm beating you up, and as soon as you come in, I'm gonna beat you down. You know, and it was like he he knew how it was going right away. Very clever fighter. Incredible experience to be like, I think he's 33 or 34, have all those fights, 46 wins. Yeah. Um, well, well, how about on the striking, though? That's what I'm very interested to know about because they're both great strikers. Both have a very, are very different how they strike, um, uh, particularly like where they strike. Um, I don't think, I don't think Musashi's really a guy who really goes for leg kicks, really. Um, or at least doesn't. His objective doesn't seem to be to finish finish people with leg kicks. Um, he was hitting Rory with some nice inside ones. You know, he throws them as the opportunity arises. But Lima prefers, like Lima is his go-to. If you do nothing, he's going to kick you in the leg. That's his, his basic move. And it's beautiful. Stiff jab, low kick. Love it. And, and uh, Musashi has a ton of knockouts, so he, like you said, with Rory. But he also knocked out Carvalho. Uh, Uriah Hall, Chris Weidman, Vitor Belfort, Thiago Santos. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, he's, he's like a, he's a very dangerous and experienced fighter. He's a, he's a legend who's, he's recognized the top fighter, but he's not recognized the legend. But if, if he was getting a different promotional push throughout his career, his accomplishments would be celebrated widely. Because he's done so much, and if you look at the other top middleweight none of them have the body of work yet. he's kind of unique because he was so experienced so young and he kept fighting at a pretty good pace so he's a very special fighter and i think and he's fighting a, a one of the greats of his generation in douglas lima you know these guys are underrated even though people hold them in high regard uh, Musashi's longevity. He's been fighting since 2003, and he's a guy who doesn't stand and bang, just bleed. He's not one of those guys. And I definitely think that's one of the reasons why he's probably been able to uh, survive for so long as a top-level fighter in in multiple uh, divisions. Um, the, uh, Lima, on the other hand, he's known for. Wanting the fight to be on the stand, on the standing, you know, uh, very rarely does he voluntarily take it to the ground. But you know, we Lima, Lima has been in some pretty violent back and forth. So I wonder, do you think, you know, do you think that uh, Lima, you know, is he going to be? Is it, you know, is it? Are, 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 Based on his most, uh, do you think that he's starting to maybe lose some of that, uh, you know? Okay, what am I basically saying is, do, do we see any, do we see any, uh, his chain at all getting, uh, wearing away from all of the fights he's been in? No, I mean, I would, genuinely, I would say it's the opposite. I would say Lima has never looked so good or so dangerous. I mean, he got wobbled by MVP, but 
But if we look at MVP's career, that's kind of what he does. And uh, that finishing sequence of Lima's with MVP, you know, the fact that it was only because he had his glove and his forearm up that he deflected the shot that MVP was trying to land on him by baiting him with with a low kick. Very close. Just good form. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, Question, though, about the other divisions. Um, um, So... Well, actually, we'll still be talking about Bader and like anyway, What do you do for him at heavyweights? What would you say would you be his the next the fight that should happen next? As far as the heavyweight fight, yeah. Oh, man. I, I mean, wouldn't know, it have to be against somebody like shit? I don't know. Probably Chet Congo. I'd say I'd say maybe maybe they book something like Maldaski versus Congo. And then Minikov versus, gosh, I'm not sure. Minikov versus either Mitrione or Karatanov. Either that or if Josh Barnett ever fights in Bellator, and if he ever wins a fight in Bellator without any troubles from USADA and the state athletic commissions, have him face off against Karatanov. That might be a fight. Karatanov's come off the loss themselves. But, uh, yeah, Barnett Karatanov will be a great fight. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see the old-school legend bang it out. And that, you know, the, that stylistically, it would be good for Barnett. That would be a fight that would be winnable for him against a big name. Not that they need to set him up for a win, but, I mean, they didn't have him come in against Cream of the Crop. He was going to fight Ronnie Marks. No insult to him, but, like, not one of the established top heavyweights in Bellator, so... You know, that might be a good fight to book. And either way, both guys have the name from back in the day. So whoever wins, they're in good shape. They're always thinking of, of, of the future, you know, and where what all the promotions are, what leads to what. You don't want it to, to all just end and then everything's boring. Heavyweight's an interesting division. they got some time to sort it out. Hmm. Uh, because Bader, I think, plans to fight twice at light heavyweight. And you know what? Speaking of light heavyweight, who would he be up against in that division? Well, that's a good question. I mean, King Carl Albertson, he lost to Phil Davis. Phil, basically, Phil Davis, although he's come up and down, he did it one or two in heavyweight, or did one a heavyweight. But uh, he's pretty much the guy behind Nemkov, so someone would need to fight him. Maybe Carl Moore, who is, I think, had to withdraw from his fight in Dublin, maybe if I'm not mistaken, last Dublin card. But uh, I think he's nine and two. He maybe have him fight Phil Davis if they don't rebook the fight he was supposed to fight. But uh, yeah, it's kind of a situation where Davis came over to Bellator, took over the division. Then Bader came over to Bellator, took over the division. But Davis is still beating everyone else that Memkov. <laughs> so. You know, even though it's across a couple of weight, pretty much you could, you know, you can't ignore Phil Davis there. You know, I mean, people say it's boring fights and stuff, but uh, not every fight. And the fact that he's winning, I mean, it's kind of like if the guy's winning at sports, he should get his, he should get his shot. And he's like the, he's like the pretty firm number three. So they need, really need to have someone fight him for the next title shot. Hmm, good point. And to be honest, who wouldn't mind seeing Mr. Pink Trunks get a chance at another title opportunity? <laughs> well, an earned one. You know, if he's beating everyone, even if it means a trilogy fight, if he's beating everyone else, like they they should do a second Bellator title fight with him. I mean, that's the way I see it. It's a sport. When it comes down to it, it's a sport. If it's a sport and you're the guy 
people shouldn't say, oh, but you lost that fight before if you've been beating everyone else. Now, it's not the case. Nemkov's getting a shot. I, I think we might see Nemkov win this fight, at which point, you know, that would open up a lot of opportunities. You send Bader back up to heavyweight immediately. And uh, not necessarily Nemkov-Davis, but like Davis versus someone who then fights Nemkov. Because the Davis fight was close. Mm-hmm. I just want to see. I just want to see them have the best guys they have available. Fight the best guys and have, have guys in momentum collide like a fucking sport. Without, without, I always feel like people are getting screwed. Like when Nemkov, it, it felt like he was getting screwed, and then Bader came down. They made it right. That feels good. In fairness, though, um, I do think that the jury would have been a much more deserving person than Nemkov. I know why Bellator went with Nemkov because he's a Bellator guy. I think had Jerry signed with uh, Bellator, I would have been okay with them giving him like an immediate title shot. Great. I mean, he had, he had so many wins in a row. And even though Nemkov was young in his career when he beat him, he has a direct win over Nemkov. And he's just a fantastic fighter. I think stylistically, he's an easier fight for Bader than Nemkov. But I would have been fine with that. Although, in fairness to Vadim, his win over Davis is better than any of Jerry's wins in his career, including Jerry beating Nemkov. Hmm. So interesting. It depends how you weigh it, I guess. I so, see. Uh, well, one we, of my last questions to you, We pretty uh, much just, I mean, I, I mean, if we're going division by division, shouldn't we also be discussing, you know, from Bantamweight on up to Welterweight? Well, yeah, I was about to say, you know, what about the Bantamweight division, you know, because that title also was vacated when Kyoji Horiguchi was, uh... Had a leg uh, injury. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what do you do with that? Do you do, you do a tor- another tournament of that? Or do you, um, I'm presuming Dan- Darren Caldwell ain't going back to bandweight uh, for the foreseeable future. So, like, what do you do with that? What, what would you do with, with that division, Deep? I mean, personally, if I were in Coker and Richelle's shoes, I'd be, like, you know, talking to Ryzen about a 16-man cross-org Grand Prix where where each side of the bracket crowns a title, and then it's a live title, and then the, the finals of the eight from each promotion, the, the champions collide. For both belts, if they could work it out somehow, do it in a ring and a cage, switch for rounds, I don't know. Hmm. But, you know, like, more realistically, if they're not going to do a crossword Grand Prix, I say you have Patchy Mix fight Arch Fileta for the title. Then you have Pettis fight the winner of Gallagher versus Cal Pacino for the next title shot. That's how I would do it. Although... Pettis maybe have him fight Bandeas or someone in the meantime, and then the winner of that fight, the winner of Gallagher and Eleanor. But I think Archuleta and Patchy Mix, I mean, if you look at Archuleta's career, he's been a champ at that weight. He's won everything except for, you know, Patricio fight lately, and he's the man. I'm going to throw the duties over to you. Unfortunately, I, I have to go. Something just come up. Uh, but just want to thank you for doing this, and we'll definitely be doing something in the future. Sorry, I gotta leave you guys early, but something just came up. Okay, okay, it's understood, good. understood. It's been a lot of fun, fellas. Thanks for having me, and uh, we'll we'll chat again soon. Oh, oh, so you about to leave too? Oh, you want to keep talking? We can keep talking, Christian. Well, yeah. yeah, we can go ahead and keep talking, even though Andrew just cut off his side of the recording. So now we might as well go ahead and. You know, close it out with this. Considering the fact that 
the WWE has got rid of a shit ton of employees over the last 48 hours. I think now that they have expanded upon that list of employees being released. Considering the fact that Bellator is one of those promotions that don't really talk about releasing fighters all that much, especially not in the Scott Coker era, let's just say if they were currently going through what the UFC is currently going through with having to book shows elsewhere and all that, but having a 600-person roster, how soon do you think that Bellator would be able to release a whole mass of bodies like what the WWE has done? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I actually don't think they're going to release anybody. And I think largely that stems from Bellator does not serve the same function for Viacom CBS that the UFC does for Endeavor. And, like of US- course, unfortunately, Disney and ESPN. Right, but, like, Endeavor owns the UFC. The UFC is the cash machine that's keeping them afloat because they're a money-losing operation, but the UFC profit minimized that law, mm-hmm. that operating law. And... Without the UFC, they would be losing a huge amount of money. They'd be, you know. But anyway, but Viacom CBS is a giant behemoth of a company, and Bellator is relatively small in that larger scale of things. But I don't think they need to do anything. They just wait till the events start up again, and then they they start going. Because part of the thing is they have the production means. So like Viacom and now Viacom CBS are the production for Bellator. So it's not like Bellator has its own whole production team that's just sitting around right now. I mean, maybe the specific guys, but I mean, like, the larger resources are just part of the, the larger conglomerate. So they're, they're not under the same kind of financial pressure, really. They don't make as much, and they're not losing as much right now. So, right. so maybe it's a blessing, guys. But with with the UFC, I wouldn't be surprised if they cut a lot of fighters because they have to offer them fights every so often. Mm-hmm. And so they may, if, unless their contracts have some sort of fail-state for this kind of thing, they may start potentially losing fighters, so they may cut a bunch of fighters, and rather than cram in the events that were missed, just not have those events, and then use that money saved to make sure they retain other fighters who may actually find new contracts with fighters who might otherwise be gone. Mm-hmm. You know, try and find extensions with the key talent. So maybe we see some of that. I don't know. I don't know how, you know, they're in a rough financial shape, but they're crafty, so it's hard to say how they may lay off some like UFC staff before they cut fighters, hard set. But, uh, you know, hopefully if fighters are cut, they're able to find places to fight elsewhere and that the market's strong enough to absorb any amount of created. Because what we don't need is fighter pay to go down or the growth of pay to slow down. We need the growth of pay to speed up to draw in prospective talent. Otherwise, they'll go to go to boxing. Boxing is less dangerous to train and you have more rights and you can figure out your nation. So, like, we don't want to lose athletes. Because, you know, there was a time when K1 was the shit, right? There was, there was a time when, for a long time, boxing was the shit. Then K1 was, like, bees knees. But that didn't last forever. And it felt like it might, but it didn't. Well, actually, MMA... the FEG version of K1 didn't last forever. K1 is still around as a wholly different company. Right, no, that's a good point. I, I guess what I mean is, like, the golden age of K1 passed. You know, the size of the events and the superstars and all the living legends in their prime, you know, like whatever, 90s. And MMA could, the same thing could happen if pay doesn't keep growing exponentially. The same thing could happen where our sport is like one of the combat sports, but not the hot one. Mm -hmm. It's one of the hot ones right now, but it doesn't have to necessarily stay one. It's not a rule that it, it stays that way. 
because, uh, you know, especially as, how to put it, especially the fighting, the, the art of MMA fighting has become more formulaic as people work out techniques and counters to techniques and things. So it's not, there's not as much mystery as there used to be. There's maybe more overall skill, but there's less mystery. So pay needs to go up so that the exciting athletes come to this sport and don't go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, speaking of fighters going from MMA to boxing and the other way around, I just have to ask, with the possibility of competitors in boxing like Derek Chisora and Tyson Fury wanting to get into MMA, do you think with the cardio that these big boys have that it's even possible for them to do that? I could see maybe Chisora doing it, one of the lower guys, but I don't think a top guy like Fury is going to do it. He might train a little bit. He might do some PR and like talk about it. But it's just not really in his financial interest because of the money at stake. You know, it's more like when Canelo's like, oh, maybe I'll fight this MMA guy. It'd be interesting. But he's just saying it to be interesting. The money's not there and the promoters aren't going to pay him $35 million to lose to some MMA fighter. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's not fast. So it's like a very specific rule set for top boxers. Most of them would be scrubbed in MMA unless they completely revamp their whole muscle memory. And same goes for MMA, you know? Like, just because you train boxing doesn't mean you train boxing at the level of even top amateurs, let alone top pros. Yeah. You know, so... They're different sports. They're different requirements. You know, the top boxers, they're kind of conditioning and the because they have to because you're just punching a lot busier. But and then the MMA... You know, you have to have all this grappling prowess and counter-wrestling and a different kind of cardio. Just very different sports, and that's why we don't see top guys. Like, kickboxing is a little easier because you, you are used to leg kicks and knees and things like that, but it's not easy to cross over. A lot of times guys go to the place they're most comfortable. If you have tender legs, you don't get into kickboxing in the MMA. Mm-hmm. Or if you kickbox, proud of kickboxing where there are no leg kicks. You don't do Muay Thai if you have tender legs. You just don't do it. You go box if you want to fight people for money. Exactly. And one more question I would like to ask is on the subject of when and where. Now, as far as boxing goes, Top Rank is saying that they want to potentially come back in the summer and do shows at the WWE Performance Center, which wouldn't be all too weird because... Boxing has had fights in pro wrestling rings long before the advent of, you know, state athletic commissions. And obviously, there are some promotions like the UFC that want to put over their own fight island, which they don't really have. I mean, it's crazy that they even think about doing some shit like that. But as far as Bellator goes, I know we basically talked about earlier if they would be able to potentially fight again, it would have to be at the CBS Paramount lot in Los Angeles. But, I mean, and obviously it would be in August. But what other locales do you think would suit Bellator well if they decide to return in the, you know, aftermath of this pandemic? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't, it's like, from what I gather, they, they feel like, when they return, they'll be, for a while, they'll be in closed lot. So I'm not sure. It would just come down to the best studio for them and how the kind of setup they want. You know, maybe they could get creative and do it in an exotic location. You know, with, with 
skeleton crew and not not no crowd, but like do them in do that aircraft carrier show they were talking about. You know, like they, there there are things they could like venues they could get creative with the venues if there's no need to house a, a crowd. But you know, well, maybe, considering their connection, and I hate to interrupt, but considering their connection with the USO, wouldn't that aircraft carrier be a way to support the troops? Yeah, I mean, they did the USO shows in Hawaii, uh, and you know, they 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 have the merging veteran players. They have like all this push with armed forces, so they could definitely they could definitely weave things like that in, or find a way to do them in a, like an exotic appearing location and weave that in because they're big on that that's like a big part of their push and like you know like in a, in a just cold analysis of like good pr for them so like it would make sense to further capitalize on on the good work that's being done there and like get get the bang for the buck so to speak right right i mean but other than that when it comes down to potential events i wouldn't mind seeing them as part of that big Ryzen martial arts festival that Ryzen is planning to do, it's just the fact that getting all those other promotions involved would have to be a little bit of a pain to go through, right? Yeah, but I mean, Ryzen, what are they, like 14 fight federation already? I think 14 all told, although maybe some of the orgs haven't put fighters in lately, but technically, you know, I mean, they're used to it. They're, that's, you know, champions come and go. They are not really hold on to people contractually the same way as the other orgs. So they're almost there like, hey, it's an honor to fight here. You can come fight here, but leave, okay. I mean, I do think they have some exclusive contracts, but they don't, like, lock everyone up the same way that other promotions do. So I think they're used to bringing people together because a lot of fighters feel honored to fight in mm-hmm. front of that crowd. They know what's up. You know, they have the awareness of the history of, of people fighting them. You know, like Vegas gets a lot of attention for good reasons. For fight, this fight, the San Jose hosted some great fights in New York now and other places. But, you know, in Japan, many of the greatest MMA fights and kickboxing matches of all time happen there. People know that. Mm-hmm. They want to be part of it. So I, I don't think they'll have a problem putting together, but I don't think they'll get anyone from one or the UFC. But as far as like Bellator, KSW, you know, Road FC, I can't remember the name of the Lithuanian League that was part of them. Lithuanian Bushido Federation or King of Kings Kickboxing, from what I know. Right, and then they have, you know, Coker has like sort of connections with like kickboxing promoters around Europe and different places, so they could even pull in from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially with those Octagon guys in Italy. Right, they put like 13, the first time they did one, they did like 13,000 with an audience or something like that. Mm-hmm. Pretty epic stuff, you know, and that's part of Bellator's model, like, or Coker's model with Strike Force too, is you find stuff that the local crowd will be interested in the ticketing business while trying to put on stuff that the broadcasting business appreciate. Exactly, exactly. When I go to the fight cards at Mohegan Sun, you know, they get a lot of fighters from the area, so like, when you're at the prelims, people have, even if they just have like 50 or 100 people there, just for them, that adds up. And you know, when, when the crowd knows it's a local fighter, they get a big pop. That you wouldn't get with just a random guy with a similar record from random place. So they're good with that. They're, they're very savvy that way. They uh, they pull from the local talent. That's, where, that's how they mine the future. Like they sign free agents and guys from regionals, but their best business is finding guys with hard-danning fights. 
Mm-hmm. Like getting AJ McKee with no pro fight. And now they built him up to be this nearly 20-fight wrecking machine. 60 fights. He's been through like three contracts probably at least. They built him up, and he knows they built him up, and they have a good relationship with Team Body Shop. They got Joey Davis from there. He's had seven fights for them. They build them up from scratch, and athletes know that they remember that. Even if they don't directly remember the strike force days, coaches usually are older. They remember that shit. You know, like when they got Rockhold or Woodley or DC or they got Kane's first fight. You know, they know how to find talent. And the, and the, the managers go to them. Certain managers have the scouts have coaches there, and they go, they bring them fighters like, hey, this is the guy. You know, and he, he listens. Especially Bob Cook from AKA. Mm-hmm. He's so underrated as far as providing talent. Like, he's fed Coker so many great fighters over the years. You know, he's the one who's like, hey, come check out DC. You know, this is the guy. And same with, you know, with other guys too. And, you know, that's partly how Coker's managed to thrive without having the major money backing. Like, you know, going back to strike work years without being the big money, you know, the, the deep pocket. The, the big business. money contract, so to speak. Right. He was able to find fighters so early on, they weren't even on anyone's radar. I think he signed Rocco when he was 0 and 1. That was crazy. And he went on with championship, two major world titles. But back when they first got him, he was one of those guys that people make fun of. Oh, look at this guy. Why is he headlining a card? Well, they saw something that people didn't see yet. That's why I've been following Bell Sports and Coker took over like a laser because I remember. Mm-hmm. You know? I remember when people were saying DC and Woodley and these guys were nothing. They weren't impressive and they would never, you know, they wouldn't be USC level. And a lot of fighters were like that, you know? And then, and then it's you know, time proved them those arguments to be invalid. So I've been watching Bellator and seeing guys like McKee come up. And other guys they signed maybe early in their career, like Nima Gracie, he had two fights in the World Series of Fighting, they got him. Yeah, you know, but obviously him. one of those fights was pretty controversial because obviously the guy he was facing was a known Nazi. Really? I don't remember that. That's, well, not funny necessarily, but that's pretty bizarre. I mean, it was so bizarre, really, that there was probably backlash from all corners of the country and probably all corners of the globe of why the fuck the fight was even shown on national television after the Newell Gaethje fight. Yeah, that's not a good decision, but I mean, that, that org was shady. They had a lot of issues. <laughs> financial, like financial conflict and stuff with the investors and the men. You know, like, it was just a pretty big shit show. Hopefully PFL isn't being run the same way, you know, the same kind of shady financials and everything like that. But uh, Three words, Ali Abdel Aziz. Yeah, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, like, I would, but I would say, you know, back to Grace, you know, they got him with two fights, so he had a little bit of experience. But, you know, we saw he gave Rory McDonald a really tough fight. Rory had way more experience and and just a, a huge advantage in high-level experience, especially. Still gave him a tough fight, you know. He's still a guy who's getting better and better. I think he's 30 years old now, 29 or 30. You know, going to hit his prime in the next year or two. You know, because he didn't, he didn't pack in the fight when he was younger, so he still hasn't hit his prime, his fight prime at least. You know, they got a lot of guys like that. They find a lot of guys. Some of them pan out, some don't. But I watch closely because, you know, I want to have seen the first five or six fights of the future great. Like, just like it felt when Cormier beat Monson and then came in as the alternate in the Grand Prix and Strikeforce. Mm-hmm. That was exciting to tell, seeing this guy who was this powerful 
powerful wrestler and very dynamic. He had fast hands, threw combos, and then he just ravaged Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And then and then had that five round war with Barnett. I mean, storybook stuff, you know. But they saw that in him very early, just like a lot of fighters. They saw it before other people. They knew in the background before the wider public gave him recognition. But you look at how people recognize Cormier today. But they had that hope for him all the way back then when he was just a guy whose kidneys failed in the 08 Olympics and moved to MMA, mm-hmm. came to AKA. You know, so sometimes you guys, you know, experience tells you to trust their decision. And as far as scouting, Coker and that team, they're badass. They really are. Right, right. But other than that, man, it's been fun talking with you. And before I get to even thinking about going on these plugs, I just got to run this little quick, uh, what am I trying to say? I got to run this by you real quick. When it comes down to Focus Fights, and of course, you can follow Focus Fights on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook only. Just search for Focus Fights in your Google machine or go to Facebook.com slash Focus Fights and Instagram.com slash Focus Fights. But as far as the Twitter account goes... And the website, of course. I mean, I was thinking about creating a whole new Focus Fights Twitter account, obviously, because we've been going through some problems trying to get that up, and I just realized the damn account suspended. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know why the hell it got suspended. I'm steadily trying to search emails about it. But the point of the matter is, you know, I mean, we've been running focus fights for about two years now. Going back to, I think, Cinco de Mayo 2018. And it's kind of crazy that we can't even get the fucking Twitter account going. But, you know, I don't want to try and change the name up of focus fights just yet. Even though some guy already, you know, made the name off of him. Plus, nobody else has it as their name, as their don't name. I mean, as their domain, as far as I know, as far as a fight gym goes, or anything like that, so it would be pretty unique, but obviously, if we change things up, somebody would automatically take the opportunity from us, but do you think that I should make a new Twitter account for Focus Fights? Yeah, I think you should go for it, whether it's called Focus Fights or called something else, you know? Never hurts to start a new thing, even if it goes dormant and you come back to it later. I say go for it and just get all the social media channels at the same time, whatever name it is, mm-hmm. or whatever. Ver- I see, I see. But it would be hard for me to, I mean, it would be easy for me to do that. I'll have that account start a different copy of stuff. You know I will. Oh, okay. So, I mean, obviously, you would help us out, right? Of I'm down. Okay, cool, yeah. cool, because I know that you were... Mostly behind the website. I'm only behind the YouTube, and obviously I was behind the Twitter. But you were mostly behind the website. Yeah, well, I was for a time. Someone else was running the website, but I was putting content on it. But uh, I got caught up doing some other projects in the back, like behind the scenes. But uh, I'm definitely down. Moving forward, I'm definitely down. Um, and to, understood. You know, Understood, and why don't you go ahead and plug away some of your, I mean, some of what you have on social media, including your acoustic MMA rankings, by the way. Well, the, right now, the, the, the active stuff I have right now going on Twitter, I'm at 
Which is like uh, a kick it, to the balls. Yeah, exactly. Front kick to the balls. And uh, on Reddit, I'm Keep to the Junk, but there's a little dash on either side of the name. But I forgot the password when I first made my account without it. So, Keep the Junk, with little dashes on either side. Come and troll me there. Or if you have questions or want to get into some long, prolonged, nerdy debates, you can do this. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and plug yourself. Christian. Okay, I am on Twitter at ChrisGary92. If you follow me, I'll follow you back. And also, I don't think I've added this, and I mean, I don't think I've talked about this yet, but you can also donate money to me on Cash App. I'm at, I mean, I'm dollar sign J Chris Gary. Please send me money. I'm kind of broke. <laughs> but yeah, I know we all need money in this time. We all need money in these times right now. It's fucking quarantine hell right now. Yeah, you got right people now. getting fired and shit. You got people losing their jobs, getting furloughed. They need the money. <laughs> but but still, let me go ahead and get these plugs out of the way before viewers turn this fucking show off. <sighs> Let's see, where else? You can follow the Best Damn Fight blog on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Opinion. You can check out more about Bellator MMA via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, or wherever you can find them at Bellator MMA or at Bellator KB for their kickboxing branch. Which, of course, we haven't really talked about Bellator kickboxing much, but will they ever come back with another event? Good question. I mean, I'm sure they'll have it a little bit in the market where, like in Italy, where it's popular, but they haven't been doing much. So basically, Bellator kickboxing's dead, huh? I'd say more dormant because they don't do that many shows in the market where that would be preferable to MMA. But not dead, just dormant. Okay, understood, understood. <laughs> Continuing on. If you want to check out more of this program, this show, you can follow us on Twitter. The show podcast Twitter is at We Are Rising Pod. W E A R E R I Z I N P O D E, all in one word. And you can also feel free to check us out on Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and hopefully soon. And I keep beating Andrew and Benjamin over the head on this. We're going to have to stream this to all podcast providers, including the Himalaya Podcast app and Podbean, but he just doesn't know when. Still, when you know, we will be the first to know. I mean, when you know, uh, when we put this up on a different podcast app and it streams to things like iTunes, I mean, Apple Music and... Google Podcast and all that shit, y'all, the fans, will be first in line to know. But other than that, man, it's been fun chatting with you and chatting with Andrew over these last two and a, two and three quarter hours about, you know, everything about Bellator MMA. It's been fun talking with you, and hopefully we'll get a chance to do this more often. Likewise, guys. That was a lot of fun, man. I appreciate it, brother. Thanks. Mm-hmm. To both of you for having me and for just representing for wider MMA on social media, which is not that, you know, people call it hipster, but really hipster is just 
people just go along with the fad, whereas there's a lot going on with sports that needs attention, and fame does not equate skill. Mm-hmm. And people they say, I know this guy's better, he's a better fighter. That is not the case. Uh, you know, it's an important threat to spread awareness of wider big martial arts. People don't get too goofy and out of touch with, you know, there are levels to fighting, but it's not all in one place. Sure. And, and you know that's true because they also put up the challenge for the UFC to have champions fight each other. They pretended they didn't hear it. That's how scared they were. They know. They know. They know, like, if they're well, if they're top well played, these men fight Douglas Lima. That's not a gimme fight. That's an ugly fight for them. They were both calling for it. The UFC just, like, we didn't hear it. But they were calling for it, and the man, and Aziz was calling for it manager and Coca said he'd do it. Yeah, they know. The fans don't know, but the promotions know. The coaches and the fighters know. It's like it would be competitive if they had a big face off. And hopefully eventually we'll get to that point where there's guys in somewhere else. Where cha- just like in Boston, where champions go fight each other and hold more than one belt on the regular as a way to build fame, as a way to build enthusiasm. Exactly. You know, part of what Canelo is a big deal in part because he's won so many belts, not because he won one belt and that was it. And then he wasn't allowed to fight for any other belt. You know, that's what, that's mm-hmm. what, like the MMA is that we don't get, we only get it sometimes. We don't get that champions beat other champions while they are champs. Indeed. But the thing is, especially when it comes down to stuff like that, it's not about competition. It's about cooperation, and that's what pretty much separates promotions like Ryzen and Bellator from the people that follow the Zupa Zombies at the UFC. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we do get this, but it's not enough. And even then, even when Ryzen and Bellator worked together, they didn't fight for the both belts in the same fight. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like when, like in boxing, one of my favorite fights, Kazagi fought Jeff Lacey or Mikel Kessler, and they were... You know, they were all undefeated champions. So they were fighting, they were undefeated champions fighting for the belt same time. The winner took everything home. Belt on Ryzen did the next best thing, which is they fought for the belt in one org, then they went to the other org and fought for the belt. Ideally, we just get them to work it out where they can unify belts. These are the biggest fights available in the sport. They just won't do it. Not yet. I have hope, though. I'm an optimist about it. One day. Yeah, hopefully one day indeed. But for now, it's been fun talking with you, and I just hope that if and when the world gets out of quarantine hell, we'll have more great fight action to talk about, especially given the fact that the summer is the first... I mean, given the fact that the summer months are probably going to be the main things popping off, but, you know, if there's no... I mean, if the quarantine continues... We're all going to have to be waiting a while for fights, and either way, we're still going to be here talking about them to y'all. Yeah, man, it was, and it's really great. You guys have me on a great conversation. There's a lot of big things coming out, and when everything starts up, it's going to be pretty hectic. A lot of different companies can be putting on a lot of fights trying to get their revenue back up. So, as fans, we're in for a treat. It's frustrating right now, but we are in for a treat. This is going to be a great second half of the year, you know. Is, is, is my opinion. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the optimistic route. Understood.
Understood. Only get watch the classic, watch the classic boxing, boxing and MMA until the fights resume, and then it's going to be on thick. We're going to be picking and choosing amongst all this great content. Mm-hmm. talk to you later and with that being said this has been the chill meister chris gary for andrew benjamin and teep to the junk all i have to say is peace my peoples in one love world we are desperately out of time the tape machines are rolling and like lenny hart always says and this is supposed to be her 20th anniversary year in these fine mixed martial arts we Just like that, we are officially out this mug. Talk to y'all later, and talk to you later, Teep to the Junk. Peace. Uh, out. Talk to you later. <laughs>